Good afternoon and welcome to the February 6, 2024 San Francisco Board of Supervisors meeting. Madam Clerk, would you please call the roll? Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Chan. Chan present. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey present. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio present. Supervisor Mandelman. Present. Mandelman present. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar present. Supervisor Peskin. Present. Peskin present. Supervisor Preston. Preston present. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan present. Supervisor Safai. Safai present. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie present. And Supervisor Walton. Walton present. Mr. President, all members are present. Thank you, Madam Clerk. <clears throat> the San Francisco Board of Supervisors acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. <clears throat> Madam Clerk, do we have uh, any communications or announcements? Yes, Mr. President. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors welcomes all interested persons to attend this meeting here in the Board's Legislative Chamber in City Hall, second floor, room 250, or you may watch the proceeding on SFGOVTV's channel 26, or view the live stream at www.sfgovtv.org. To submit your public comment in writing, send to the email address bos at sfgov.org, or use the U.S. Postal Service, send to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, the number one, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, City Hall, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. To make a reasonable accommodation request under the Americans with Disabilities Act or to request language assistance, please contact the clerk's office at least two business days in advance by calling 415-554-5184. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Could you please call the consent agenda? Yes, items 1 through 11 are on consent and considered to be routine. If a member objects, an item may be removed and considered separately. Would any member like an item or items severed from the consent agenda? Seeing none, a roll call, please. On items 1 through 11, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safai? Safai, aye. Supervisor Stephanie? Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. <coughs> Chan, aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. And Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. There are 11 ayes. Those ordinances are finally passed. Next item. Item 12. <coughs> 
Item 12, this is an ordinance to prioritize the city-owned parcel of land at 100 Orizaba Avenue as a potential site for the new public library branch, subject to environmental review, required approvals and other ap applicable laws, and to require departments to prioritize the expenditure of city funds for a new public library branch at that location. Roll call. On item 12, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, I. Supervisor Safai. Safai, I. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, I. Supervisor Walton. Walton, I. Supervisor Chan. Chan, I. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, no. Supervisor Engardio. Aye. Engardio, I. Supervisor <coughs> Mandelman. No. Mandelman, no. Supervisor Melgar. No. Melgar, no. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. And Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. There are eight ayes and three noes, with Supervisors Dorsey, Mandelman, and Melgar voting no. This ordinance is finally passed. Next item, please. Item 13. Could you read 13 and 14 together, Madam Clerk? Items 13 and 14 are two resolutions that pertain to the lease and use agreements to conduct flight operations at the San Francisco International Airport. Item 13 approves the 2023 agreement between the city and Aer Lingus, Flair Airlines, Hawaiian Airlines, JetBlue Airways, Qatar Airways, Air Portugal, and Zipair Tokyo for a term of 10 years through June 30th, 2033. And for item 14, this the, is an approval of the agreement, a 2023 agreement between the city and Starlux Airlines Company, LTD doing business as Starlux Airlines North America through June 30th, 2023, to affirm the CEQA determination and to make the appropriate findings for both items. Roll call, please. On items 13 and 14, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, I. Supervisor Safai. Safai, I. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, I. Supervisor Walton. Walton, I. Supervisor Chan. Chan, I. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I. Supervisor Engardio. Aye. Engardio, I. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, I. Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, I. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, I. And Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. There are 11 ayes. Those resolutions are adopted. Madam Clerk, could you please read items 15 and 16 together? Items 15 and 16 are two resolutions authorizing two contract modifications for the Office of Contract Administration for the purchase of electrical materials, supplies, and fixtures for city departments. Item 15 authorizes the third modification uh, between the city and Alameda Electrical Distrib Distributors, Inc., to increase the contract amount for a new total amount of uh, 10.5 million with no ch change to the total contract duration of May 1st, 2018 through April 30th, 2024. And for item 16, uh, this item authorizes the eighth modification to a contract between the city and Buckles Smith Electric Company to increase the contract amount uh, uh, for a new total contract amount of 19.5 million with a, no change to the contract duration through June 30th, 2024. Same house, same call. The resolutions are adopted. Next item. Item 17. This is an ordinance to amend the planning and administrative <clears throat> codes to correct typographical errors, update outdated cross-references, and to make non-substantive revisions to clarify or simply co simplify code language to affirm the secret determination and to make the appropriate findings. Same house, same call. The ordinance is passed on first reading. 
Next item, please. Item 18, ordinance to amend the fire code to provide fire protection standards for the charging and storage of lithium ion batteries used in powered mobility devices to prohibit the use of lithium ion batteries that are damaged, that have been assembled or reconditioned using cells removed from used batteries, and to require the fire department to conduct an informational campaign to affirm the CEQA determination and to make the appropriate findings. Colleagues, seeing no names on the roster, can we take this same house, same call? The ordinance is passed on first reading. Thank you, Fire Marshal Coughlin. Next item, please. Item 19, ordinance to prohibit the Recreation and Park Department and Planning Department from performing environmental review of or otherwise implementing a project to clean up and reconstruct oh, yeah, right. the marina, right. a yacht harbor, in a manner that would extend the West Harbor Marina by more than 150 feet from its current boundary. Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, President Peskin. I need to recuse myself from this vote. Do, do I need to state the reason? Yes, my husband and I own a boat in the East Harbor and I've been informed by the city attorney's office that I cannot take place in this vote or have anything to do with it. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Is there a motion to recuse Supervisor Stephanie made by Supervisor Melgar, seconded by Supervisor Mandelman? We will take that without objection and Supervisor Stephanie is recused. Supervisor Safai. Thank you, colleagues. Very happy to be here today on this issue. Um, we put a lot of time and effort and energy talking with community, spending time listening to a real diverse set of stakeholders from across San Francisco uh, that have spoken loud and clear about their position on this issue. Before I get into that, I want to thank President Peskin uh, for working hand-in-hand -hand, uh, with me on this, uh, Supervisor Preston and Chan for their co-sponsorship on this issue, and for all the community members that have come out uh, over the past uh, couple of months and really, really organized around having their voices heard. Um, something that I did not necessarily, I might have been in the category of those that thought that this was something that we could take for granted, that this was a place that would always be there. It would always be a part of San Francisco's uh, ecosystem. Uh, but when the proposal came forward from Rec and Park to dramatically transform this area as a result of years of litigation because environmental cleanup has to happen on the site. There is contamination in the harbor that needs to be remediated. And so the idea is, how are we going to achieve that? How are we going to preserve uses and also achieve environmental cleanup? And so many constituents, many individuals in San Francisco that care about this space felt as though their voice was being dismissed by Rec and Park. They were not being heard. They were not being listened to. And we've gone through extensive community meetings where hundreds and hundreds of people have shown up in person and I know many of you colleagues have received thousands of emails from across San Francisco expressing the concern. And I just want to state very, very clearly, this is about preserving uses. People that row, people that swim, people that learn to sail. This is an iconic and very, very special part of San Francisco. I have never partaken in any of those activities. I've never swam in the harbor, I've never rowed in the harbor, and I don't know how to sail. But as part of this process, I have gone down 
and learn from and listen to people that are directly involved in it. And, and just for the record, I will be going down to one of the swimming clubs tomorrow to get into the bay and, and swim. So I, I have made that promise. It was intended to be last week, um, but because of the bad weather, we had to postpone. Um, and so I, I, I have made that promise. I will be down there uh, tomorrow. Um, and I'll just say this. You know, when I walked into the St. Francis Yacht Club colleagues, there were pictures on the wall of an Olympic sailor that literally learned how to sail in the Marina Harbor. It is the place that people, not just the Olympic sailors, but people that are, and students that are part of the high schools in the area, swimmers that have extended their life, that have been part of this. I know President Peskin swims in the harbor, in the marina. I mean, this is a really important part of San Francisco. So what we say with this legislation is we want Rec and Park to go back to the drawing board. We want them to preserve the space in front of the Marina Harbor. We want them not to extend the West Harbor beyond a certain amount of footage. And we use the, the wave organ. We got a great letter today from the Exploratorium. I don't know if you all know that. You probably do but a letter today saying how important and iconic this is for San Francisco. Such a broad set of stakeholders care about this. So we're not going to allow the West Harbor to extend. And then we believe that with real effort, as has been done in many Rec and Park revitalization projects, we believe that philanthropy, we believe that there's additional resources that can be accessed for this. I mean, just look at India Basin. Hundreds of millions of dollars in philanthropy are going in to remake and revitalize that site. Not one penny of philanthropy or not one penny of private dollars have been proposed for this location. And what that will help with is additional cleanup, additional design, and additional vision for this space. Um, any of you that have been to the tunnel top area along the Presidio don't have to go very far to see how transformative philanthropy and private sector money with public money can remake a public space into something amazing. And I think that's the opportunity we have here. We don't want to damage that. We don't want to diminish that. We want to preserve those uses and we want to allow for environmental cleanup and for there to be a broad and, and majestic vision for the future. And I say majestic because that's what I've heard over and over and over again by the stakeholders and those that have been involved in this place. So. We made some adjustments in committee that talked about the wave organ as the extended piece. We allow for there to be room, for there to be a broader vision. And again, I just, I want to specifically thank Aaron Roach, Evelyn Graham uh, that have been leading the conversation in the community, uh, Joe Bravo and others from Keep the Waterfront Open, the Dolphin Club, the East End Rowing Club, the St. Francis Yacht Club, all of the different sailing clubs and now the Exploratorium and a whole host of just everyday San Franciscans that care about this space. I think this is the right thing to do. So I hope everyone will vote for this today. I know there's others that want to speak on it, but again, I thank everyone that's been involved in this and really appreciated, as I have with many other occasions, working with President Peskin on this hand in hand uh, to ensure that we get the right piece of legislation done. Thank you, colleagues. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Supervisor Roney, did I see your name jump around on the roster? Do you want to go next? Because you were this. Okay, Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, President Peskin. 
Um, I'm happy to support this, and I will say that of the people who advocated for it, um, the one that is closest to my heart is some of the um, advocacy around youth sailing. Um, I represent Treasure Island in my district, and we have a Treasure Island Sailing Club that does a lot of great work uh, with youth sailing. Um, in a city that has a natural resource like the San Francisco Bay, I think the, the organizations that make sure that we have equitable access to it for young people and um, supervisors who may be swimming in it this week, and as I, as I did actually some time ago with uh, my former city attorney colleague, the late uh, Buck Delventhal, um, the more we can do to encourage people to um, have access to the recre recreational opportunities that the Bay presents, the better. And we, I, I think especially when it comes to sailing, one thing that I have really appreciated about um, the yacht clubs and the sailing community is that they recognize the importance of making sure this isn't something that's only available to rich kids. And I think this project would uh, harm the youth sailing program. In fact, it would eliminate the, the youth sailing program that is there. Um, so I am happy to support this. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey Supervisor Ronan. Thank you. Um, this one has been a, a, a difficult one for me, um, mostly because uh, of the incredible budgetary woes that we find ourselves in and how uh, Rec and Park, I thought, you know, did a great job in trying to figure out how to meet the terms of the settlement agreement to do so in a way to save the general funds um, additional, you know, dollars, et cetera. However, um, you know, after tons of advocacy, after seeing uh, how many uh, recreation users, how important this site is to so many of them. Um, I am opening, open to supporting this. However, it's really going to be important for the, you know, mayor in the future, the board in the future, uh, to ensure that this remains as revenue neutral as possible. The BLA gave us several options about how that could happen, whether it's raising slip fees, whether it's charging uh, for public parking, um, and we can't, uh, uh, you know, asking Rec and Park whether they're willing to do that when they advocated a different solution to this issue it, it, it is, is not going to work, right? It's going to be incumbent upon this board and the mayor in the future to ensure that that happens. So I just wanted to say on the record how important I, I think it is to um, not putting undue burden on the general fund uh, because of this change. Sometimes, you know, we, we have to, to pay more uh, to preserve the status quo. And in this case, uh, you know, I, it, it's pretty amazing to be able to dock your boat uh, and look out at the Golden Gate Bridge. I, I don't think we'll have uh, um, uh, too few people wanting to do that. So I, I, I really encourage you all to uh, increase those fees. Uh, but I do want to thank um, Rec and Park uh, for being very thoughtful about this. Uh, I really want to recognize Monica Scott from Rec and Park, who I really appreciated, came into my office and really explained all the thinking behind um, this project. I think they did, they did a great job. And ultimately, um, uh, I also want to thank the public who uh, really made it a 
priority to preserve this space uh, in San Francisco, um, who ultimately went out the day. And um, I, I just hope this board uh, acts responsibly in terms of the budget in the future. Thank you, Supervisor and former Budget Chair Ronan. Very much appreciated. Um, seeing no other names on the roster and sensing the comments that I have heard. Oh, actually, no, we cannot do the same house, same call, because we have a different house. Roll call, please. On item 19, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safayi. Aye. Safayi, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Chan, I, Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I, Supervisor Engardio. Aye. Engardio, I, Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, I, Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, I, Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, I, and Supervisor Preston. Preston, I. There are 10 ayes. The ordinance is passed on first <coughs> reading. Madam Clerk, I takes us to, yeah. Item 20, oh, next item, item please. Item 20, resolution to determine that the transfer of a type 20 off-sale beer and wine liquor license to Pink House by the Bay LLC located at 800 Bay Street will serve the public convenience and to request that the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control impose conditions on the issuance of the license. Roll call. On item 20, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, I, Supervisor Safayi. Safayi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Chan, aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Peskin, aye. And Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. There are 11 ayes. The resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, why don't we go to our one committee report. <clears throat> Item 25 was considered by the Land Use and Transportation Committee at a regular meeting on Monday, February 5th. Item 25 is a resolution to oppose California State, Bennett, uh, State Senate Bill number 951 unless amended and setting forth the city and county of San Francisco's support for the California Coastal Act and the recognition of the value of the California Coastal Commission to enforce the California Coastal Act. Supervisor Engardio. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Our coast is precious. It belongs to all of us. I never want the Coastal Commission to be hindered in its ability to protect the coast. Ensuring accessibility, preserving natural beauty, and protecting wildlife are all integral to the purpose and role of the Coastal Commission. Nearly 50 years ago, the Coastal Act was enshrined in our state constitution because our coast was under assault. Voters created the Coastal Commission to halt out-of-control out destruction and encroachment on our scenic coastline by private property owners and suburban sprawl. But well before Californians voted on the Coastal Act, urban San Francisco was already built out with housing all the way to the Great Highway. Today, Senator Weiner questions why the coastal zone has to zigzag into inland areas like a Safeway parking lot or the Irish Cultural Center. Senator Weiner has proposed a bill that seeks to update the coastal zone boundary. It does not change Coastal Act provisions to guarantee public access and protect sensitive environmental resources. It moves borderlines so there are no potential problems if, for example, an area away from the coast wants to build housing. 
Now, these potential problems can likely be resolved administratively without the need for legislation. Senator Weiner and San Francisco's planning department are in active dialogue with the Coastal Commission. We should let Senator Weiner and the Coastal Commission work through their process. It feels premature to vote on a resolution now when Senator Weiner and the Coastal Commission could reach a consensus that makes the resolution moot. I want to reserve judgment until we see how those discussions play out. I've heard some worry that getting rid of the coastal zone's zigzag lines could clear the way for the development of the infamous 50-story tower on Sloat that was proposed last year. I've said many times that the Sloat Tower is not real. It was proposed by a disgruntled developer who wanted to stir up controversy because he didn't get his way. Senator Weiner's proposed boundary does nothing to change San Francisco's local control or authority, and it doesn't help build a 50-story tower. That project is flatly not consistent with local or state law, and it certainly isn't consistent with our Western Shoreline Plan, which is firmly within our local control. We will ensure that tower never happens, even if it is outside the lines of the coastal zone. It's important to be a defender of our coast, which belongs to all Californians. I want to ensure our coastline is never at risk. But we shouldn't be in a rush to take a formal position on this. The proposed bill is far from being heard, and the whole thing could get resolved administratively. Let's see where they are in a month. So I will vote no on this today, uh, but I look forward to seeing what happens in the coming weeks as the Coastal Commission works with Senator Weiner on a solution that will satisfy our need to protect the coast. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio. Supervisor Melgar. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Um, so I uh, want to associate myself with the comments of uh, my colleague, Supervisor Ingardio. Um, and I also want to thank President Peskin for bringing this uh, resolution to the Land Use Committee uh, and for going above and beyond that to bringing the parties together to negotiate, uh, Senator Weiner, the Coastal Commission folks, and our planning staff in the mayor's office, uh, because if that hadn't happened, I think those uh, negotiations would have uh, you know, perhaps not happened as fruitfully as they are now. Um, I also think it's premature. I'm not ready to uh, take a stand on this until those negotiations uh, come to fruition and uh, yield whatever amendments they yield. Uh, I uh, am not in the position of being in the Senate right now, so I uh, trust that those negotiations will come out with something that we can then support or oppose. Uh, but I am not in a place where I can do that right now, so I will be opposing this. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar. President Peskin. Uh, thank you, Acting President Walton, colleagues. Um, let me not put too fine a point on this. Uh, I was shocked that a former member of this body would introduce a San Francisco-specific bill in the California State Legislature without having the decency to consult any one of the 11 of us, not former Coastal Commissioner myself, not current alternate to the California Coastal Commission, Supervisor Mandelman, not consult anybody at the Coastal Commission. Yeah, I'm happy that after this was introduced, I was able to have an adult conversation between the Director of Planning and the Coastal Commission. This entire piece of legislation is unnecessary. They both agreed that this could be done administratively. The precedent 
for the first time in 52 years of taking land out from under the jurisdiction of the California Coastal Commission under one of the most celebrated, cherished pieces of California law that has been an example for the nation by wholesale taking out land in one county is a horrible precedent whereby the beginning of the end of the California Coastal Act that has maintained access for all Californians to our precious coast will be eroded. How dare Scott Weiner even go down that path? Let us not blink. Vote in favor of this resolution. If we do not take a hard stand now, it is the beginning of the end of the protection of our coast. Thank you, President Peskin. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, and I, uh, it's a tough act to follow with that. Um, I just wanna say that um, as, uh, as the supervisor representing the area that actually um, is impacted by this precisely, this uh, legislation, carving out um, our coast uh, on the west side, but including the Richmond, the outer Richmond. I think that uh, not just I, but really my neighbors and my community are just horrified by the fact that our own, our very own representative in the state um, legislature to decided that we'll carve us out uh, and remove the uh, protection of the California Coastal Commission. Uh, I adamantly against that. I don't think that there's any way that you slice it and dice it with this bill that we could actually um, excuse Senator Winner and his intent of what he's trying to do in our coast. And so for that, I will not only strongly, um, as a co-sponsor of this legislation, opposing this state bill, will continue to do everything that I can to make sure that we do not just protecting our coast in San Francisco, up and down the state of California, but also uh, to really look at uh, what has been happening to us with other bills that this Senator Weiner have put forward and passed by our legislature that really continue to single San Francisco out for whatever reason, as our own representative, cannot be protecting San Francisco's best interest. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan, Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, President Peskin. Um, yeah, I just want to say there's a uh, passion on both sides of this issue, and I have great respect for both uh, President Peskin and Senator Weiner, and feel lucky to call them both colleagues and friends. I am very happy that President Peskin included a provision in the first resolve clause that makes it clear that the city opposes this bill unless amended. And I'm very hopeful, I remain hopeful, that Senator Weiner and the Coastal Commission can continue ongoing conversations to implement compromise administrative changes, a solution that I believe will eliminate the need to use this broad brush that is in the current legislation. And to this end, I will be supporting the second version of the resolution in hopes that a better bill will be constructed in the near future. Thank you. Supervisor Ronan. Thank you. I want to thank you, uh, President Peskin, for putting this forward. I couldn't agree more with, with everything you've said. Um, it doesn't get more beautiful than the California coastline. And it therefore does not get more enticing for developers to buy up land and keep the rest of us out of the beach and, 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 and the coast. And I couldn't be more grateful to the forethought of uh, legislators that came before us who created the California Coastal Act 
uh, and we need to do everything we can to preserve it. So thank you. I'm proud to be voting yes on this today. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. Supervisor Mandelman? Thank you, President Peskin. Um, good and reasonable people can disagree about uh, legislation. Um, I uh, very much like and respect the uh, Senator on all sorts of issues and topics, but um, I do disagree with him on this. I think the California Coastal Act is one of the great uh, policy successes, legislative uh, achievements, and the preservation of our coast is one of the major uh, policy accomplishments uh, of the 20th century in which I think for which Californians can and should be proud. Um, and I am worried about uh, the precedent of uh, legislators from different jurisdictions beginning to exempt ourselves from uh, pieces of the act. Um, I don't think it is a great precedent to set. And so um, thank you, President Peskin, for this resolution, which I, will, which I am co-sponsoring and will be supporting. Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, and thank you to all of the co-sponsors. Madam Clerk, a roll call, please. On item 25, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, I. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, I. Supervisor Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, I. Supervisor Walton. Aye. Walton, I. Supervisor Chan. Aye. Chan, I. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, no. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, no. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, I. Supervisor Melgar. No. Melgar, no. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, I. And Supervisor Preston. Preston, I. There are eight ayes and three noes, with Supervisors Dorsey, Angardio, and Melgar voting no. The resolution is adopted. Why don't we go to our 230 special order commendations, starting with Supervisor Preston. Thank you, President Peskin and uh, colleagues in this first meeting uh, during Black History Month. Uh, I have the honor and privilege to recognize Tiffany Jackson. And, and Tiffany, feel free to, to make your way up uh, while I say a few words uh, about you. Tiffany is a tireless advocate for unhoused San Franciscans who have served who has served the community at Hospitality House for more than a decade. Welcome, Tiffany. Um, Tiffany is a proud native San Franciscan, born and raised in the Fillmore. She attended Galileo High School, and her first job was at the African American Culture Society during her high school years, working for the NAMES Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. From her earliest days, Tiffany has been a consummate advocate for those in need. At Hospitality House, she worked first as an on-call worker, later as peer staff and case manager, and for the past five years, manager of the Hospitality House Employment Program. Because of... <laughs> because... Because of Tiffany's efforts, the program has become a model for the city, and the Hospitality House Neighborhood Job Center is, a high, is, is highly regarded as one of, the, of San Francisco's uh, signature workforce development partners. For the past three-plus years, Tiffany has convened and facilitated the Homeless Workforce Collaborative, co-founded by Hospitality House, to engage a network of more than a dozen community-based workforce providers 
who use their collective power to advocate for more resources and increased options for unhoused and other vulnerable job seekers across the city of San Francisco. Tiffany's work as a recognized leader in the city's workforce field resulted in her appointment last year to the citywide Committee on Workforce Alignment. She brings her on-the-ground expertise and her passion for justice to ensure that whether during times of prosperity or times of adversity, the city of St. Francis leaves no one behind. Tiffany's own experience as an African-American woman fighting against oppression and gender-based violence have fueled her constant drive to speak up, to stand up, and to push back whenever and wherever needed to help those who are marginalized and in need. Her firsthand experience with racism and homelessness and her work directly with survivors of domestic abuse have deepened Tiffany's empathy and compassion and motivated Tiffany to speak up for and empower those who need help finding their own voice and accessing help. It is with great pleasure and appreciation that we recognize Tiffany Jackson during Black History Month. Tiffany is an advocate, a courageous voice, and in so many ways represents the best of what we can be for each other and our community. Tiffany, we are grateful for everything that you do, everything you have done for so many years here in the city and county in San Francisco, and I couldn't be happier uh, to <laughs> honor you today and turn the mic over to you. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you so much, Supervisor Preston. I really appreciate that introduction. <laughs> it was amazing, really. I, I, I want that afterwards. <laughs> Again, thank you. I am deeply honored as we celebrate Black History Month, an occasion that holds profound significance for our community and our nation. I would like to express my heartfelt gratitude uh, to the Board of Supervisors for this resignation, or recognition, sorry. I'm not resigning. Um, <laughs> being a part of this uh, ceremony is not just a personal achievement, but also a testament to the depth and vibrancy of the black culture. Our community is a source of inspiration filled with innovators, educators, and natural leaders who have shaped the uh, course of history. Each story is a chapter in a narrative of resilience, triumph, and the relentless pursuit of justice. Black History Month captures the struggle and struggles and successes um, that we as a community have endured and achieved. It serves as a reminder of the remarkable individuals who paved the way for change, opening doors for future generations. Today, I stand here not just as an individual, but as a representative of the legacy of strength, perseverance, and accomplishment. Once again, thank you to the Board of Supervisors for this acknowledgement. Let us use this moment not only to celebrate the achievements of the past, but also to inspire and uplift one another as we forge ahead in a future of boundless possibilities. Thank you.
Our second special order commendation will be given by Supervisor Hillary Ronan. Supervisor Ronan. Thank you, colleagues. If I can ask Alma, Crystal, Olga, and Al Amelivar LLC, the representative from Am Amelivar LLC, to come up to the mic. Thank you for being here. Colleagues, last week, the mayor spoke to this body about the early successes uh, in the mission to address the problems of fencing operations and the selling of stolen goods on the street. Unfortunately, because of the necessity of the vending ban on Mission Street, many aspiring entrepreneurs, newcomers, and people just trying to survive in San Francisco were caught up. As we weighed the need to keep order on the street against the impact on innocent people, we knew it was important for us to provide alternatives and resources to our permanent legitimate vendors. In the months and weeks leading up to the implementation of the vending ban, we planned on how to support our legitimate vendors. We knew that any resource package we created to lift up permitted vendors would need to help them continue selling their goods and supporting their families. That is when Alma Castellanos, Crystal Carabez, Olga Carabez, and Amelivar LLC jumped in. And then with the organization Clecha, founded by Small Business Commissioner William Ortiz Cartagena, stepped up, as always, to serve our neighborhood. When the call went out to our community partners for ideas, Clecha helped to conceive and plan and organize El Tiangue, Spanish for an indoor flea market, an alternative place for permanent vendors to continue to do business. This group found a storefront, negotiated a lease, got permits, and staffed the market within a matter of weeks. It was extraordinary. Going from learning there was a need to establishing a fully functional marketplace would have been an impressive feat under any circumstances. However, the speed professionalism and deep care with which this team set up El Tiangue was truly, truly exceptional. Today, I am proud to present commendations to three special individuals who have helped and embody the spirit of love for their community and the wit and guile to get it done when needed most on a holiday weekend, <laughs> missing out on the holiday with their family and instead painting and getting a storefront ready. Uh, I wanna congratulate you, Alma, Olga, Crystal, um, and Amelivar. You are truly the best of San Francisco and uh, your heart and your passion and your hard work for this community uh, is something to feel so, so proud about. Thank you so much. And if you wanna say a few words. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. Um, on behalf of myself and my colleagues, um, it was definitely a holiday weekend. However, we knew the importance of this ban and we understood the needs of the vendors that were being affected. So for us, the holiday didn't matter. Uh, what mattered was making sure that we had this up and running in a matter of days um, and that we had this ready to go because we know the necessity is great. Um, so again, thank you for trusting in us and um, it's been a pleasure to help out. <laughs>
And our next special order commendation will be delivered by District 10 Supervisor Shimon Walton. Supervisor Walton. Thank you so much, President Peskin. Colleagues, today we have the privilege to honor Lynn Westry. Nothing exemplifies the importance of black history like highlighting the black women who have improved the lives of so many. Lynn is a distinguished survivor and advocate in San Francisco with over two decades of experience spearheading the San Francisco Department of Public Health's efforts to support families of victims of homicides. She has actively worked to amplify the voices of victims participated in numerous citywide and statewide initiatives, including listening sessions with SFPD, survivors' conferences at the state capitol, and local community organizing. Lynn's advocacy began through the loss of her eldest child, Shanika Westry. She transformed this tragedy into meaningful action, propelling her to develop the courage to go beyond being a grieving mother. Lynn has become a dedicated advocate and leader committed to improving mental health services for her community. Through her work, Lynn has positively impacted hundreds of lives in San Francisco during their most vulnerable moments. She is a well-respected and beloved member of the community, regarded by many as family. Lynn's leadership and advocacy have earned her numerous accolades including the Women Making History Award in 2005, a Jefferson Award, and recognition by the San Francisco Department of Public Health as a mental health hero and outstanding advocate. Lynn's legacy will forever be ingrained in San Francisco as she spearheaded the establishment of the Survivors of Homicide Victims Awareness Month. She lobbied the Board of Supervisors and Health Commission for their support, and the Awareness Month was launched on the steps of City Hall. Lynn's unwavering commitment to helping others is evident in all that she does day in and day out. The measure of her success is difficult to quantify, but is unmistakable when witnessed firsthand. On a more personal note, she has been a mentor and has been someone who works to hold all of us accountable and will hold your feet to the fire. Watching her work with families and community that have lost loved ones is something that makes me proud to represent her as a District 10 resident. Lynn has personally made sure that many families receive all the supportive services needed when tragedy hits. I can call her anytime to ask her to connect with someone who needs support and guidance during their most vulnerable moments. Lynn, we, and as you can see, so many community, want to personally thank and celebrate you today. This is a proud moment for me to be able to honor and acknowledge you in this chamber. Thank you for all of your service.
first of all, I want to thank Supervisor Walton. I always call him my supervisor. It's very personal. And I would like to thank the entire board and God, all my community. Oh, God. All my community that I didn't expect to be here that surprised me today. My daughter, my granddaughter, my goddaughter, my colleague over here. I, I am so overwhelmed today, but I am so honored to receive this recognition on today with it being Black History Month. As a proud black woman, I walk in that shoe with pride. And I'm so thankful that it was changed because I think it was supposed to happen a month ago. So I think it all worked out for its good. And I often think about my ancestors, particularly my mother. Growing up in Bayview, raising 10 having 10 kids as if that wasn't enough, becoming a foster mother, working, cleaning homes, and going um, to school, going to Berkeley, then later going to state and graduating, becoming a social worker, working with the San Francisco redevelopment, making sure that folks had housing, seeing those strong women at such a young age going to work really like fighting, standing, and fighting for the rights of blacks in San Francisco, particularly Bayview Hunters Point in the Fillmore. And I think I was getting all that resiliency at that time and not even realizing what was happening in that moment. And it brings me to this point in my life today. As I think about um, this passage that I once read when going through losing my daughter at 18 and not having an understanding of how and why could I lose my child at 18. And this one passage read, God doesn't change your circumstances, he changes you in your circumstances. So in that, that's when my healing really begun and really looking at after losing so many community folk in my community, working for the Department of Public Health nonetheless, and no service really being offering for my community. And my community is struggling and hurting and hurting more and more without any real services. So without having a clue, began that fight. Didn't know what door to go to, didn't know who to speak to, but I was determined that we were gonna be a city that makes a difference. And on today, I stand here very proudly saying that San Francisco, we serve so many families, so many victims, not just um, homicides, but victims in general, those that suffering from mental health issues and suicide, you name it, and we respond. We're a 24-7 unit, and I'm very proud to say that we're here representing the full San Francisco, not just my community, Bayview Hunters Point, but the whole city of San Francisco. And as I take my seat, I just want to say that as a Department of Public Health Crisis Service, I'm hoping that this board would really look into, I've had conversations with Shamad, I think even with the mayor and different ones, probably anybody that gives me an ear, that I would like to see Department of Public Health Crisis Service recognized as a first responder. And if nothing else, I'm asking that that board, if you really appreciate the work that we do, that we should be recognized, right, Marquis, as first responders and get that where it's in writing. Because again, we're responding not to just homicide, but suicide, mental health, you name it, we're responding. So with that being said, again, thank you.
Madam Clerk, why don't we go to general public comment for a few minutes and then we'll go to our 3 p.m. special order. Oh, excuse me. Roll call for introductions. How did I just skip right over that? Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Ronan, first up to introduce new business. Thank you. Um, first, uh, today I want to uh, present an in memoriam on behalf of Supervisor Melgar and myself. Um, we asked to adjourn today's meeting in honor of Oscar Fernando Grande. Oscar was a loving husband, father, grandfather, brother, and friend. His soul transitioned on January 20th, 2024 at the age of 88 in his adopted hometown of San Francisco, California. He was born to Teresa Teresa Grande and Fernando Luna on June 4, 1935 in San Santa Ana, El Salvador. Raised by his single mother, Teresa, and faced with economic uncertainty, at a young age, he dropped out of school and started working carrying sacks for coffee from the fincas to the mercados for the Alvarez coffee empire. Orphaned at the age of 13, he began driving and became a chauffeur and bodyguard for members of the Alvarez family. Oscar married the love of his life, Emma, in 1959, uniting their blended family that consisted of Oscar Jr., Clarabel, Maria Eugenia, and Carlos. Their youngest, Oscar Martin, was born years later in San Francisco. Oscar managed to bring over his family of five to the U.S. to embark on a new life of economic, educational, and cultural opportunities. Soon after arriving, he worked at different jobs that included dishwashing at the iconic Mark Hopkins Hotel, and later landing a union Local 87 handyman job at the SF Newspaper Agency, which ran both the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner newspapers, retiring after 34 years of service. Together with his wife, Emma, a union garment worker at Levi's Valencia Street Plant, they brought their first home in the Excelsior Mission Terrace neighborhood within five years of arriving in the United States. In his older years after the death of his beloved wife, Emma, Oscar appreciated the loving support of his family, friends, and community. He enjoyed road trips to Half Moon Bay and Tahoe, visits from his grandchildren, Aztec dance ceremonies, and trips to Costco. He loved to entertain. Weekly pupusas and wine dinners were a common thing at his home. Oscar spent the last week of his long and love-filled life at Kaiser Hospice in South San Francisco, surrounded by loved ones and where the nurses affectionately called him Papito. I am moved by the way that Oscar led his life with love, with grit and resolve, with time in nature, community and Costco, and with his beloveds always by his side. I wish his family and especially his son Oscar and daughter-in-law Cynthia Mesa and their children great comfort during this difficult time. I know that losing a father is deeply painful, but I hope today's tribute helps to honor the life and the memory of Oscar Fernando Grande. Rest in power. Secondly, I uh, just wanted to give a brief update um, on the MTC where I serve as an out outside board. Uh, last month, the MTC approved an initial framework for authorizing legislation that is being developed with Senator Weiner for a potential 2026 transportation revenue measure. As proposed, the authorizing legislation would approve a menu of reve revenue options that MTC could put on the ballot, as well as high-level expenditure plan categories with much details to be developed later. Uh, 
It also assigns MTC the role as regional network manager and assigns it with responsibilities around improving the connectivity and effectiveness of the Bay Area's transit system. While, while it was approved, there wasn't agreement among commissioners on either the best revenue source or eligible expenditures, and in particular, whether roadway projects should be eligible. I will note that the San Francisco MTC commissioners, including myself, are advocating for the region's transit riders and prioritizing our transit systems, not enlarging highways. Second, MTC heard an update on the first two years of implementation of the trans Transit Transportation Action Plan and approved the charter for the Regional Network Management Council, or, NR, or RNMC. The RNMC is the new 11-member body at MTC and transit operator staff established to represent the interests of their stakeholders and provide input on regional policies as the Transportation Transformation Action Plan and other initiatives continue to be implemented. And finally, the last major update from MTC is around the Housing Incentive Pool or HIP program. With five years of housing data collected, San Francisco is now in line to receive around $36 million in incentive funding from the HIP program, which rewards jurisdictions for producing affordable housing near transit. The Mayor's Office and the Transportation Authority will be prioritizing projects to receive funding. And the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. Supervisor Safai. Submit, thank you. Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, today I'm introducing a resolution condemning anti-abortion harassment and urging the San Francisco Police Department and the City Attorney's Office to implement and enforce Article 43 to the fullest extent of the law. Just two weeks ago, thousands of people took to our streets to protest the right to reproductive health care that we are constitutionally guaranteed in California. While the First Amendment may guarantee the right to free speech, it does not provide a free pass to harass, intimidate, and threaten bodily harm to others. Since the Dobbs v. Jackson decision, California has proudly led the fight to protect and expand access to abortion and reproductive care for all. At the same time, extremists have ramped up their advocacy in states that are protective of abortion rights like our own. According to data collected in 2022, the National Abortion Federation reported that pro-choice states saw a 29% increase in assault and battery, a 100% increase in burglaries, and a 913% increase in stalking incidents between 2021 and 2022. The National Abortion Foundation Security Director shared that the threat of violence against abortion providers remains on the rise and is extremely concerning. In addition to an increase in major incidents, extremists are becoming more organized. For example, we're seeing them target clinics on days when they know they will have more patients, are less staffed, or have less security. On February 14th, anti-abortion activists associated with the 40 Days for Life will commence vigils across the globe. In their own words, these vigils involve a, quote, 40-day nonstop, round-the-clock prayer vigil outside a single Planned Parenthood center or other abortion facility in your community, end quote. These self-professed activists have identified Planned Parenthood of Northern California as a vigil location. While these individuals have every right to protest, that right should not come at the cost of impeding a person's right to provide and seek health care. Events like 40 Days for Life incite opportunities for extremists to harass, intimidate, and threaten bodily harm to health care providers and patients. It is paramount that we reaffirm that the city and county of San Francisco has and will continue to be a champion of reproductive freedom and justice. 
and that we will continue to stand in solidarity with healthcare providers and patients who have the right to provide and seek care without fear. This resolution seeks to reaffirm our commitment to keeping healthcare providers and patients safe and urges our law enforcement agencies to enforce Article 43 to the fullest extent of the law possible. Finally, I am introducing two letters of inquiry to the school district as a follow-up to last week's joint hearing with the Civic Engagement and Education Committee of the Youth Commission. Along with Supervisors Dorsey and Engardio, I am asking the San Francisco Unified School District to report out on the current status of the $10 million from the 2016 SFUSD bond that the Board of Education unanimously reallocated in 2021 to address site security. In addition, I am asking Superintendent Wayne for an update on the district's progress on training our middle and high school campuses on the Sandy Hook's Promise Say Something Anonymous reporting system. These issues remain a top priority for our youth as well as my office, and I look forward to hearing from the district to better understand the progress made and continued efforts to enhance security measures within SFUSD. The rest I submit. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Mr. Madam President. Clerk, why don't we go to our 3 p.m. special order. Would you please call items 21 through 24 together? Item 21 is a public hearing of persons interested in the determination of exemption from environmental review under the California Environmental Quality Act issued as a general plan evaluation by the Planning Department on October 23, 2023 for the proposed project at 2395 Sacramento Street to allow the, rehabil the rehabilitation of an existing four-and-a-half-story former medical library building at 2395 Sacramento Street and to develop an adjacent vacant lot to construct seven-story over-basement 24-unit residential building with 26 below-grade vehicle parking spaces and 38 Class 1 bicycle parking spaces to authorize exemptions from development standards under the State Density Bonus Program. Item 22 is the motion to affirm the department's determination that the Sacramento Street Project is exempt from further environmental review. Item 23 is the motion to conditionally reverse the department's exemption determination subject to the adoption of written findings. And item 24 is the motion to direct the preparation of findings to reverse the department's determination. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, we have before us a hearing on the appeal of the determination of exemption from environmental review under the California Environmental Quality Act issued as a gen general plan evaluation for the proposed project at 2395 Sacramento Street. Um, after the hearing uh, has been held and closed, the board will vote on whether to affirm uh, or conditionally reverse the determination. Uh, unless there are any opening comments from any supervisors, we will proceed as follows, uh, which is our normal, normal protocol, up to 10 minutes for a presentation by the appellant or uh, their representative, followed by speakers, public speakers on behalf of the appellant, uh, not to exceed two minutes per speaker, then up to 10 minutes for a presentation from the planning department, the issuer of the uh, determination of exemption, and then two minutes per speaker in opposition to the appeal, and finally a up to three-minute rebuttal for uh, by the appellant or their representatives. If there is no objection, we will proceed in our normal fashion, and uh, we will open the public hearing. Uh, Mr. Drury, 
Uh, we will start your 10-minute clock as soon as you begin speaking. Good afternoon, honorable members of the Board of Supervisors. My name is Richard Drury, and I'm representing Jonathan Clark, the appellant. Um, this project uh, involves the repurposing of the Lane Medical Library, which is historic resource, San Francisco 115, picture of it here, very significant Calusa Sandstone building. We have an architectural historian who will talk more about the architectural significance. I'll talk more about the legal issues here. Um, the city and the developer two years ago hired a consultant, Jones and Stokes, to prepare an EIR because everyone knows uh, projects that impact historic resources cannot be exempted from CEQA. And so they were preparing to do an environmental impact report, all well and good. But about a year ago, they did a dramatic change of course and decided to try to exempt the project entirely from all CEQA review using an exemption that has never, to my, my, my knowledge, been used in the city. It's called 15183. It's a very little known provision. Um, and it says, if you've already done CEQA review for a project, you don't have to do it again. Fine, that makes sense. But here, the prior CEQA review that the city is pointing to is the environmental impact report that was done for the housing element for the general plan for the entire city of San Francisco. That's what's called a program EIR. It analyzes at a very high level impacts of adding 50,000 people to the city through upzoning. Fine. But it specifically says this is a programmatic EIR, it's not a project level EIR, it doesn't analyze any projects at a project level, and it even states when projects are proposed, we will do further CEQA review. But now we have a project that impacts a very significant historic resource, the Lane Medical Library, a landmark, and the city saying we don't have to do CEQA review because we did it for the housing element. This argument proves way too much because if this were allowed to proceed, no project, no residential project certainly, will ever need to do CEQA review in the city of San Francisco again, and that's just not right. Under CEQA, there are two kinds of EIRs. There's programmatic EIRs, they analyze things like general plans, and then there's project-level EIRs, they analyze things like projects, uh, a building, an uh, oil refinery. Um, the, um, and, and they're different things, and there's a whole body of case law that says these are different things, and the programmatic EIR cannot be used for a project level analysis, but that's exactly what the city's trying to do here. We know from the emails we've received under the Sunshine Act that other developers are planning to do the same thing if this developer gets away with it in this case, and that would be tragic for the city, all across the city. That's why I think this really presents a citywide problem, not just a District 2 problem. Um, 151, however, doesn't support the city's arguments. Um, under 15183, um, the project has to be consistent with the density that was analyzed in the prior CEQA document. The housing element CEQA document assumed the maximum density in this area would be 19 units and 40 feet in height. This project allows two towers that are 80 feet in height and density of 24 units. Now, I just want to put a footnote here. Of those 24 units, three are nominally affordable units, affordable to family of four making $110,000. This is certainly not low-income housing. The other 21 units are full market rate housing. Um, so since this project is not consistent with the density in the housing element, 15183 doesn't apply at all. Um, but also, 15183 says, CEQA review is still necessary to analyze 
peculiar impacts, impacts that are peculiar to the project. What could be more peculiar than impacts to a unique historic landmark as we have here? So that pops it out of 15183 also. Finally, 15183 excludes offsite impacts. And we have expert analysis showing that this project will have, and actually the city's own analysis shows that it has significant offsite impacts in terms of vibration to other historic resources that are as close as five feet away. Um, noise impacts, air quality impacts, wind impacts. Our expert consultant calculated that the construction emissions, um, because there's a preschool like very close, just a few feet away, would be 400, create cancer risks of 400 in a million. I don't, I've been doing this for a long time. I've never seen a number that high. The significance threshold is 10. This is 400 um, because, again, uh, young people have a much higher cancer. You, you basically multiply the cancer risk by 10 for, for young people. But it's very significant. And these are the kind of impacts that really ought to be analyzed under CEQA. Our, my client is not saying, don't build housing here. He's fine with housing here. Um, but CEQA review should be required to make sure that the impacts to the historic resource are mitigated properly, um, that the impacts to the air quality, noise, vibration are mitigated properly. Um, and we think that there are, there are things that can be done. Our experts have su suggested numerous mitigation measures that the city has not implemented because they skirted environmental review entirely. Um, the, the city should simply do what it was planning to do two years ago, an EIR or maybe a mitigated negative declaration, but some form of secret review to protect this really significant uh, historic resource and the health of the surrounding community. And I'm going to turn the stage over to Bridget Maley, architectural historian. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Bridget Maley. I have 30 years of experience in historic preservation. My qualifications uh, are in your board packet. The Lane Medical Library of Stanford University was built in 1912 as the last piece of a large medical and educational complex. The library by architect, architect Albert Pieces was designed with, uh, with the adjacent domed Temple Sheriff Israel, also his project, uh, to complement each other. This photograph from the 1920s and a detail of the architect's original drawings were easily located in the Stanford Digital Archives, yet were not used in the CEQA analysis. Here is a current view which illustrates how very minimal alterations have occurred to this block over time. The project sponsor's tall, bland additions to the library will not only impact the library, they will forever change its visual and historic relationship with the Temple Sheriff Israel. The medical library is also equally intact at the interior. The planning department required that the project sponsor evaluate the historic interior features of the public spaces and determined that they were indeed significant and contributing. Yet, the analysis put forward of potential impacts using the tool of the Secretary's standards never once mentioned the impacts to the interior features, including the very significant Arthur Matthews murals that are site-specific, appropriately medically themed, and in the main reading room. Further, the analysis did not include a single mention of how the project would or would not impact these murals. The Planning Department's Secretary of the Interior Standards Analysis didn't mention the murals would be removed. A historic resource under CEQA is the entire resource, the entire building. Um, and um, this particular project does have publicly accessible interiors. The Planning Department determined that these were publicly accessible and yet they completely ignored these features and spaces. 
Further, when the Historic Preservation Commission and the Planning Commission approved, the housing, approved this project, the staff reports explained that the housing element EIR was to be used, but their verbal presentation never once mentioned using this tool, and I feel this was a grave disservice to the public. My professional in my professional opinion, the proposed project is out of scale and character with the architect's complementary library and temple in the same block, both beautifully detailed. The verticality, the bland materials, height, and un unarticulated roof line of the pro proposed project will impact both buildings and their historic relationship. Further, the dramatic interior intervention and the removal with no plan for disposition of the library's murals also represents an impact. The proposed project as approved does not mitigate impacts to a less than significant level under CEQA and does not, does not meet the secretary's standards. Eight, count them, eight, other highly qualified historic preservation professionals and historians have submitted letters asking for more thorough environmental review. I'd like to ask you to think about the historic buildings in all of our districts, all of our districts, not just District 2. And what, this will, what using this um, programmatic EIR um, to swat away site-specific impact analyses under CEQA will do to other landmarks in all of our districts. And I'll let Jonathan say a few words. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, is there a timer somewhere? Uh, hi, I'm Jonathan. And it's such a, a beautiful space. First time I've been here. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm representing 17 uh, residents located within 300 feet of this project, including myself. And um, in the past seven days, we've collected 72 signatures in support of this appeal. The project exceeds normal zoning limits, going from 87 feet from the normally allowed 40 with a 20, uh, 25 normal setback with zero uh, setback with the proposed project. Um, when the project vastly exceeds the originally allowed What's originally allowed under San Francisco General Plan, there's going to be outsized environmental impacts that must be considered. And CEQA is a statute that identifies and it attempts to mitigate these impacts um, where feasible. We have submitted a list of impacts prepared I'm by sorry. outside experts, including carcinogenic sorry, pollution, Th vibration. I'm sorry, your 10 minutes has come up. Okay, thank you. Thank um, you. I'd just like to ask your vote uh, in support of um, requiring CEQA for this project. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, seeing no names on the roster for questions from members of the Board of Supervisors, I will open up public comment specifically for those who would like to speak in support of the appeal, uh, which means in opposition uh, to the project, so to speak. Um, so, Madam Clerk, would you please call the first speaker? Please come up to the podium. Welcome. You are against this project, that's simple. And this is, it's on because this is on the appeal. This is not general public comment. I know. Okay. It's about this project. You don't, don't destroy anything anymore. You destroyed enough. So up, you don't touch architecture. You don't put any ugly stuff next to it. Okay, so you don't do this project. Thank you for your comments. Perfect. Next speaker. Good afternoon, members of the Board of Supervisors. My name is Catherine Petrin. I'm speaking on behalf of San Francisco Heritage and our CEO, Woody LeBounty. We support the appeal 
that is before you this afternoon. It is unclear to us that the proposed project at 2395 Sacramento Street qualifies for streamlined environmental review under CEQA. Heritage most definitely does not object to infill for affordable housing projects that are sensitive to context and historic resources, but we are concerned that in haste to accommodate a proposed state density bonus project, the city has not conducted adequate CEQA review on city landmark number 115, the Lane Medical Library. Heritage believes CEQA streamlining dependent on the 2022 housing element EIR should not be the practice over specific project-specific review, especially where known historic resources and landmarks are involved. Heritage is seeking clarification about use of the housing element EIR for individual projects going forward. With new state housing laws, production laws now in effect, it's more important than ever for the city to clarify how it will conduct CEQA evaluations and determinations. Heritage requests this board grant the appeal and return the project to planning for full environmental review. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Your next speaker, please. Good afternoon. I'm Stan Hayes, and I'm president of the Telegraph Hill Dwellers. And on behalf of THD's board and its more than 500 members, we ask you to grant this appeal and to require environmental review of the project's impacts on this landmark building. <clears throat> planning has determined that this project is exempt from environmental review effectively sidestepping project-specific environmental analysis by simple and maybe conveniently tearing off the housing element EIR. Planning's determination, if you uphold it, may set a sweeping precedent opening the floodgates to exemptions for future such projects and risking CEQA review being similarly sidestepped for projects throughout the city. Please don't let that happen. CEQA provides essential project-specific decision-making information to you, your commissioners, your staff, and especially, importantly, to the general public. You must not lose that. The city cannot lose that, certainly not just for the sake of streamlining convenience. Individual projects often have unique project-specific effects, which can only be addressed by project-level environmental analyses particularly those involving designated local landmark properties or National Register-eligible resources. The housing element EIR is a programmatic EIR. As such, it does not, nor has it intended to, resolve individual project-specific environmental effects. We urge you, do not substitute the broad-brush housing element EIR in place of needed project-specific analyses. We strongly support and we can concur with the appeal and materials filed by attorney Richard Drury on behalf of the appellants. Please grant this appeal, refer this project back for preparation of a more appropriate CEQA document. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, President Peskin and members of the Board of Supervisors. I'm Courtney Damkroger. Uh, former member of the Historic Preservation Commission in San Francisco. I, I promised first off that I would let you know that Robert Cherney, uh, Professor Emeritus of History at San Francisco State University, submitted a letter and planned to be here to testify in support of the appeal and was not able to, and he asked, 
asks that I convey his apologies. Um, I'm here as well in support of the appeal. The Health Sciences Library at 2395 Sacramento is a designated landmark, significant for its design, architecture, and role in San Francisco history. As such, it merits a thorough review of the impacts from any proposed project to its character-defining features in order to determine the pro if the project meets the Secretary of the Interior's standards. In this case, the character-defining features of the publicly accessible interior have not been recognized and should have been for the purposes of CEQA. I'm in favor of the appeal because the planning department's reliance on the housing element EIR and the general plan evaluation for CEQA clearance does not provide the evaluation intended for designated resources under CEQA. Historic resources are successfully reused for myriad new purposes like the one proposed when what makes them significant is identified and respected. Denying this appeal and allowing for the use of the housing element EIR and the general plan evaluation for individual CEQA review will lead the way for tremendous damage and loss of such resources in our city. I urge you to grant the appeal. Thank you. Good afternoon, President Peskin and members of the board. I'm Susan Brandt Hawley, and I'm here as a resident of this city. I also happen to be an attorney who has practiced um, CEQA issues uh, for over 40 years now, I have to admit, and I've spoken before this board before uh, as an attorney. I support the appeal and would like to point out that this guideline that we're talking about it derives its authority from the Public Resources Code 21083.3, which very clearly says that the consistency with the general plan element uh, does not preclude uh, a CEQA analysis if there are any significant impacts that were not studied. And as pointed out by Mr. Drury, uh, by its very nature, a housing element does not look at every parcel. It hasn't analyzed the, the significant historic resources that might be involved. And so it, it's, it's completely inappropriate to be used in this way. This is a very slippery slope that if, the, if this board would allow this to be sufficient, this kind of treatment of CEQA based on a housing element, um, you would be just overloaded with uh, improper applications for exemptions and you'd be looking at these kind of issues all, all the time. In CEQA practice, a, a project to be approved has to be consistent with the general plan. That's step one. But step two is compliance with CEQA, they are separate. So the plan itself needs to comply with CEQA, but projects that go forward must also uh, receive individual CEQA analysis when appropriate as here. Thank you. Thank you, next speaker. Good afternoon, President Peskin and members of the board. Ozzy Realm with San Francisco Land Use Coalition and No Neighborhood Council. Um, we strongly urge you to take the appeal and uh, send the project back to the planning department for a review on the CEQA basis and the impact on the environment that this project is going to have on a historic resource. In my neighborhood, I have witnessed um, at least more than once, a couple of times, that privately held properties that actually happen to be a historic resource were being blocked despite what the 
um, guidelines are for preservation of the of uh, historic resources from the public view. And um, in this case, we're not even dealing with a private property. We're dealing with a public property that is a, a, a public amenity. Um, that's why I really urge you to send us back to the planning department for an environmental impact analysis. Um, and given the fact that the planning department is so willy-nilly in terms of its own interpretation that is not even uh, can be upheld by law, uh, I think this will send a strong message to them that they cannot be a rug department and just interpret things as they please. Uh, clearly, this uh, project needed to be evaluated on the impact on a historic resource, which is a public amenity, and this is the right thing to do. Send it back. Do the right thing, please. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Mark Reiser, resident of San Francisco. Uh, at this point in the presentations, I guess I'm unlikely to add anything new. I apologize for that. But allow me just briefly to join the voices urging you to grant this appeal. Um, the environmental determination short-circuited an appropriate review process by failing to evaluate the existing landmark building, its character-dividing features, and it developed no apparent provisions to ensure appropriate treatment of the rare and potentially fragile Calusa sandstone, which covers the outside of this building. The precedent established by the inadequate evaluation given to this highly important individual Article 10 landmark is deeply concerning. Individual landmark status under Article 10 of the Planning Code, as you no doubt know, is the most significant official designation that San Francisco can, get, can bestow on a historically important structure. The designation is intended to afford the highest level of consideration. The existing landmark at 2395 Sacramento is significant by every measure. And what you're being asked here is not to join an emotional response to a favored building. It's being asked to uphold a set of rules and procedures that have been developed to, to balance competing interests that did not occur here. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Good afternoon. My name is Richard Brandy. I'm an architectural historian, and I was engaged to do the HRE historic resource evaluation on the interior of the building because the planning department determined that the building's interior spaces were open to the public and they had not been evaluated before. So I have a very specific point I'd like to make in the time I have. The interior is uh, open to the public and therefore it's subject to all the protections and review that we would give any historic resource. The artist Matthews is uh, acknowledged as a designer of merit therefore he's risen to the appropriate level and the murals on the inside are historic resources so I want to draw your attention to the fact that the mitigation plan states that the murals which are going to be salvaged and uh, <clears throat> disposed of should be donated to a nonprofit or cultural association or a sale to a private entity now in the mitigation plan there's no conditions or safeguards to ensure that the murals end up in a safe or appropriate place. And we know from other murals uh, that this is a re re recipe for a disaster. 
Um, so I very briefly uh, want to uh, urge you to, um, in your deliberations, uh, require that the, at a minimum, the mitigation plan be changed to reflect that uh, the following four points. The applicant should be required to find a qualified uh, uh, cultural association or private entity. The, whoever takes it has to take all three because otherwise it kind of ruins the historical significance of the murals. UCSF just went through this whole process and there's a lot of recommendations that's in your packet as to what uh, I recommend you follow that. They've already gone through this. And that crucially, if there are no takers that want to take these murals or buy them or take them for free, that in a reason... Speaker's time is concluded. We're happy to take your Thank talking you. points and, if you And like. I think we understand the gist of your comments. Next speaker, please. At the display, could be turned on, please? Sure. SFGov TV. With such last public comment, Arizona State University, Shalom, San Francisco, the historicity of the so. Uh, 2017, construction of the temple behind such property that is of the conversation today, that was of that moment. Uh, the big game. Thank you. Sir, did you want to show, uh, draw the attention of the camera to the uh, projector? If, if, uh, if it's not turned on, thank you. It's, it's completely fine. I wish not to tamper. And to protect the historicity of the San Francisco uh, historical city. But thank you. I'm not a criminal. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello, everyone. My name is Shaima Rahmani, and as a resident of District 2, I stand here to voice my concern about the projects. Um, this development raises significant concern about its impacts on historical integrity, environmental health, and unique character of our neighborhood. One of the issues is about vibration from the construction work. The details from the project's review show that the shaking could be really strong. They're talking about vibration as high as one inch per second. That's a lot when you consider that old buildings can only handle up to 0.25 to 0.30 inch per second without getting damaged. This means that the shaking from construction could be more than three times what these old buildings can safely take without possibly getting cracked or damaged. This is a big deal because it means there is a risk, a real risk of damage. We need to make sure to take proper steps to protect our neighborhood heritage and homes. I urge you guys, I urge the board to please take considerations and uh, look at the sequel consideration. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Esteemed Board of Supervisors, I am Atlas Romani from 2020 Webster, reaching out with grave concerns over the proposed development at 2395 Sacramento and its potential to dangerously increase wind speeds in our area. 
My concerns are not just personal, but extends to the broader community, particularly vulnerable populations, given the proximity of essential healthcare facilities, including a healthcare facility right in, in front of my home and a hospital across the street. The stakes are incred incredibly high. My own recent experience being forcefully knocked down by wind during a storm two days ago starkly illustrates the imminent danger of the project that the project poses. As a young, fit individual, if I can be this easily overpowered by the wind, how can our elderly, those with health conditions, possibly fend for themselves? The thoughts of them facing such a hazard on a daily basis is not only deeply troubling, but also unacceptable. This is a call to action for us to uphold our duty of care to all residents, particularly the most susceptible to harm. I implore you to, man to mandate rigorous CEQA review focused on the wind-related aspect of this project. Our collective responsibility is to ensure that safety and accessibility for everyone, especially those relying on nearby medical facilities, are not compromised. Thank you for your attention to this critical issue. Your decision can safeguard the well-being of our community and affirm shared commitment to protecting those most in need. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Honorable board members, I am here today to address the issue of noise disturbances caused by the construction project at 2395 Sacramento, particularly concerning the impact on my ability to prepare effectively for my medical licensing exam. As a medical student, maintaining focus and concentration is paramount to my academic success and future career aspiration. The construction noise, noise that will go on through the whole days and nights whole day and night, poses significant threat to, threat to my future and potentially jeopardize my, my, my future. I urge the Board of Supervisors to prioritize a thorough CQA review of the proposed project to ensure public safety and mitigate the adverse effects of noise pollution on residents like myself. This review should consider not only the immediate impact of construction noise, but also the long-term consequences. And also, I want to point out this is a beautiful room in a beautiful city hall, a historical building that was built in 1916 the same time that the library was built, 1912, actually a little bit older. Please protect it and don't let it perish. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, Lawrence Bardoff, District 2 resident. I took this photo right uh, outside our front door, and that fallen tree is smack dab in front of the subject property. It was one of over 900 that fell in San Francisco last February. I think our wind problem itself justifies further sequel review. Interestingly, the wind study relied on to green light this project said we're okay. Curiously, it analyzed old data from miles away. How old? From the 1940s. Why, especially in the time of climate change, would we not use contemporary data from the project site itself is a mystery to me. 
Now, our own history, more recent than 1940, offers a cautionary tale. Uh, in 1957, Clarissa McMahon, our second woman supervisor, insisted we solve the wind problem for the baseball stadium they were building at Candlestick Point. Nothing was done. Candlestick Park opened in April 1960. The first ceremonial pitch thrown out, ironically, by then Vice President Richard Milhouse Nixon. He declared it the finest ballpark in America. Two years later, in 1962, a wind study concluded that they could have substantially avoided the wind problem by building it 100 yards away. Let's avoid another mistake like that. Let's do our homework. Let's look before we leap. Please grant the appeal. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Board of Supervisors. I support the appeal. Uh, I'm Lily Alberga, and I live right across the street. I'm in District 2. We've lived there for 16 years. Larry's my husband. We're very much an, in favor of repurposing the existing library, but we are very, very, very concerned that a complete CEQA study has not been done. There are two new massive structures that are being railroaded forward without the complete CEQA study. These, this lack of study is depriving everyone involved with a meaningful environmental, biological, and wind and historical resource study. The two structures are significantly higher than historical San Francisco standards. And with the climate change worsening, this seems to be the wrong time and place for the city to be easing these environmental planning standards. CEQA, a state law that was passed in 1970, was put in place for a good reason. It was intended to assess the environmental impact and to provide guidelines to protect the California ecosystem of projects before they are started. It's a prudent look before you leap policy. The library project is a huge leap. It's the first new construction on our block in 100 years. It sits between a National Historical Building, the Temple, and a San Francisco landmark, the library. The current plan destroys the lush garden next to the library and replaces it with a parking garage entrance and a 77-foot structure. However, the garden could be playing a critical role in mitigating the impact of wind on our street, which we have significant of. And we won't know the ramifications of removing the garden without the complete CEQA study. The magnitude of the library project cannot be understated. It's enormous in our neighborhood. It's hard to imagine a more appropriate project to fully need a CEQA study. In the 16 years in our home, we've... Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is Tess Guarino. I'm a neighbor and I'm in District 2. Today, I want to talk about the noisy disruption to change in wind and air quality concern. We end you to look out for our community. The wind condition post-construction exhibit notable changes. Measurement at pedestrian height indicate increased velocity up to 34.50 miles per hour. The taller building channel winds raising 
the mean velocity along the Webster streets by 6.5%. That is dangerous, and we are respectfully asking for a complete CEQA review for the proposed construction project. I want to feel that I'm safe in San Francisco. I want to feel that you, my representative, will be able to make decisions that benefit my neighborhood and not in your demand. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Marve Ishlar. I live in District 2 and someone who has been recognized globally uh, as a top community builder and after building 155 communities all around the world. And my role as a consultant for United Nations on Community Initiatives underscores my commitment to fostering inclusive and sustainable communities. This dedication brings me before you today to discuss the crucial topic of mindful development of our beloved city, San Francisco's uni unique her heritage and values lie at the core of what makes our city truly special. The current development proposals challenge us to carefully consider their long-term impact on our, both our environmental and communities, cultural and social fabric. Through my experiences, I've witnessed firsthand the significant benefits of involving communities in the decision-making process. This ensures that development projects not only benefit everyone, but also do no harm. It's this inclusive approach that we must embrace to safeguard the essence of San Francisco for future generations. As we deliberate on our city's path forward, let's place sustainability, inclusivity, and respect for our rich heritage at the forefront of our decisions. Let's ensure that the legacy we leave behind is one that future generations will look back on with that pride and gratitude. Thank you for giving me the platform to share my perspective. I think together we can sculpt a future that genuinely captures the spirit and values of San Francisco. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Catherine Howard, a resident of D4 in San Francisco, I ask you to grant this appeal. As a landscape architect, I have worked with historic landscapes, and I'm familiar with the Secretary of the Interior standards and various guidelines. These standards are clear and easy to understand, so I'm a little concerned that the planning department doesn't seem to understand them or be able to apply them carefully. Of more importance, I'm stunned that the city would try to exempt this project in particular because of a programmatic EIR. Following this reason, we will lose CEQA reviews for too many housing projects. This is a wrong interpretation. This could also set a precedent for other kinds of projects. For example, what about the recreation and open space element, the ROSE? This report is created every few years by the Department of Recreation and Park to outline our goals and standards for our parks. Could the ROSE be used as an excuse to approve specific projects that are destructive to our parks and open space without a closer look at each project. This is a precedent that could be set. We need CEQA, we really need CEQA to protect our city, and I ask you to support the CEQA, uh, this appeal. Thank you. Thank you, next speaker. 
Good afternoon, Board of Supervisors. I'm here to speak in favor of the environmental review. Um, as I previously have spoken to this board at least 14 times, and unfortunately, sometimes bureaucracy and red tape takes time to move. But this is a priority with climate change and wind. And some of you in this room at the Board of Supervisors know what the issue is. And I'm getting really frustrated telling you what the issues are and you're not doing what you should be doing. What the mayor did to the city is reprehensible. She placed every single person in this city, including firefighters and police officers. And not too long ago, there were several incidents with firefighters and police officers that got injured. She placed them on digital surveillance. I have the evidence. It's a contract right here with HSA, with Trent signing it. And it's also Radian 6 technology from Salesforce. Salesforce is based here and is a big funder of Mayor London Breed. That is your issue if you want to control climate change and wind, period. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. And if there are any other speakers after this individual, please line up to my left, your right. Honorable supervisors, my name is Samia Ramani, a concerned resident from District 2. Would any one of you sitting here today take a study from 70 years ago related to our environment or climate and apply it today? This is not a hypothetical scenario. This is exactly what's happening with this project. The study that they have proposed and submitted, it's outdated. It ignores the unique microclimates of San Francisco and particularly the intense wind that happens in the Pacific Heights area and in Webster streets. So what we have done is we have contacted a modern quantitative wind analysis, including a third-party compu computational fluid dynamic analysis, and we have prevented, presented results, and the results, are, the results are actually alarming. And for anyone to sit here today and say a 25% increase in wind does not cause or present danger to pedestrians. I don't know what, you know, like they will have to reevaluate re their understanding of how wind really can impact pedestrians. Now, this is, uh, it's not just uncomfortable, it's actually hazard, it's, it's, ha it's hazard to the public safety and also to property. And that is recognized not by anybody other than the National Weather Service. Furthermore, we have done analysis regarding uh, diesel emission, and the findings were showing that the particular levels will be 40 times more than what CEQA accepts as limits. So there is few things here and there that really needs to be reviewed, and the conversation should shift towards, instead of getting rid of CEQA entirely, we understand we need more housing, everyone agrees we need that. But instead of getting rid of CEQA, what we need to... Thank you for your comments. Thank you. Seeing no other speakers on behalf of the appellant, public comment on this segment of the hearing is closed. Now we will have up to 10 minutes for representatives of the planning department. Ms. Gibson. Good afternoon, President Peskin, members of the board. I'm Lisa Gibson, environmental review officer. 
I'll be making the first half of this presentation and I'll be focusing on uh, broader CEQA issues and then I'll hand it over to Rich Sucre to focus on historic resources. <clears throat> the department submitted five detailed memoranda responding to the appellant's multiple briefs. One last, our last one was sent just earlier today responding to yesterday's appellant brief concerning air quality. After thoroughly reviewing all appellant materials, we maintain that the general plan evaluation we prepared was properly issued based on substantial evidence. The appellant has not met the legal burden to prove otherwise. I'd like to, otherwise, I'd like to address claims that the department did not do any CEQA review for this project and that somehow we're doing something entirely new. Let's be clear, both claims are utterly false. I'll explain. The general plan evaluation that we issued is a type of CEQA determination that follows the mandate of CEQA 2108.3 and guidelines 15183. Subsection A, which requires that projects consistent with the development density established by general plan policies for which an EIR was certified shall not require additional environmental review except to examine whether there are peculiar effects. The board is familiar with this CEQA streamlining provision because the city has used it for almost 300 projects since 2009 when we began issuing community plan evaluations for projects tearing off of area plans that had programmatic EIRs throughout the city. And um, next slide, please. These are shown on the left side of this slide, areas where we have area plans. Not all of them are ones where we've done programmatic EIRs that we tear off of. But where we have, uh, we are, where we use CPEs, we do it based on this provision of CEQA. Um, and uh, just like here, we, uh, as we've done with this project, uh, Sacramento Street, We've used those to streamline impacts that have been identified on historic resources. What is different now is that we are using the same CEQA streamlining provisions for housing projects, tearing off of the housing LME IR. We did use the CPEs also for housing projects, but the housing LME IR, of course, uniquely is addressing impacts of housing development. Um, and so we're using the provisions of CEQA in exactly the same way. And I'll explain using the project that brings us here today to illustrate. Next slide. Using the robust analytical framework that, uh, for subsequent development that we established in our housing element EIR, we concluded, uh, we conducted a thorough project level impact analysis of whether the 2395 Sacramento Street project would have impacts that are peculiar to the site or the project, were not previously analyzed as significant impacts, or are new off-site or cumulative impacts, or are more severe based on new info. Because the answer was no, we were able to issue a GPE. If the answer was yes, we would have prepared a focused mitigating neg deck or EIR. So how did we get to no? Next slide. Well, for one, it goes back to the housing element EIR, which this board adopted um, on January 31st, 2022. When it did so, the board made CEQA findings based on the housing element EIR, which disclosed about 35 significant environmental impacts that could occur from future housing development. The board adopted the statement a statement of overriding considerations, acknowledging that even after application of 31 mitigation measures, housing development would result in significant and unavoidable impacts in the areas shown in the slide. 
When we reviewed 2395 Sacramento Street, we found that the project would have significant impacts that could be mitigated, that none, but that none of these was peculiar because they were similar to the impacts that were already disclosed. We came to that conclusion after conducting project level in review that included over 150 pages of project level documentation, including technical studies, evaluation responses, and, and determinations. Most notably, these included full historic resource analyses, as my colleague Rich will describe. Next slide. With all of that substantive evidence to support our GPE, it's entirely inaccurate to claim that the department conducted no environmental review, and we conducted project-level review. Let's just say that we hadn't used the housing element EIR to streamline. Let's just say that wasn't a tool available to us. We would have conducted our analysis, and based on the information that we have, uh, today, we would have issued a mitigated negative declaration. We would have identified the same significant environmental impacts. We would have applied the same mitigation measures, and um, we would have uh, done the same studies. The NEGDEC would have simply necess necessitated a lengthier, costlier process. Um, although I do want to note that the housing element EIR includes a mitigation measure that's noted at the bottom of the slide that required an alternative-like process that we um, uh, came up with to avoid or minimize impacts, kind of recognizing that through this pr process there's a, a loss of alternatives analysis. We could talk more about that if there are any questions. So I'd also like to note that objections by the appellant um, to streamlining provisions in state law are not grounds for an appeal. Opposition to streamlining is contrary to Housing Element Action 8.5.9, which directs the city to develop a streamlined process for implementing the Housing Element EIR for future housing projects um, and future planning code amendments, which will be forthcoming. Um, it's noteworthy that the Housing Element EIR was not appealed, and the department was very clear in the EIR, in text in the EIR, citing these provisions that we're talking about here today um, for, to be utilized for future development. And um, we did state uh, at the certification hearing our intention to streamline future housing development under this CPE-like process. Speaking of appeals, uh, the board upheld seven CPEs on appeal, including one for a state density bonus project. Finally, I do want to acknowledge that the historic preservation policy concerns that have surfaced on this appeal are important and do deserve the department's attention. And there are more appropriate forums for that. That's all the time I have because now I'm turning things over to Rich Sucre. Great. Thank you, Lisa. So my portion of the presentation will focus on the project itself and the historic resource analysis, as well as the planning department's um, response to the appeal. Um, so the, we can put the slides up, okay? As a reminder, the project includes rehabilitation of a city landmark number 115 and new construction of two horizontal additions to the east and south. The project will create 24 residential units, which includes three on-site inclusionary affordable housing units. The project required discretionary approval actions by both the Planning Commission and the Historic Preservation Commission. Both entitlements were unanimously approved and neither appealed. Relative to the issues raised in the appeal, I want to focus on three points. The department did appropriately conduct a project-level evaluation of impacts to the exterior, interior, and setting of the historic resource. The Certificate of Appropriateness Review is a separate analysis conducted um, that is separate than our analysis conducted under CEQA. 
and the department did consider the importance of the three reading room murals and their future treatment, and we did identify appropriate mitigation measures in our GPE. In addition, just to acknowledge, the submitted National Register nomination does not provide any new additional information not already provided in our analysis or understanding of both the building and the project. Under CEQA, historic resource analysis is broken down into two steps. We, one, identify what is the historic resource on the site, and then two, conduct an evaluation of project impacts to that historic resource. As noted in our historic resource evaluation response, the HRER, we did recognize a significant impact to the building's interior, and we also noted that this aspect of the project did not meet the Secretary of Interior standards. We also identified appropriate mitigation measures to ensure that important interior features, such as the murals, were appropriately treated. Ultimately, we found that the project still retained the building's eligibility for listing in both the National Register and as a city landmark with the incorporation of the mitigation. Sacramento Street is a city landmark number 115, and as such, any work to the property did require approval by our HPC. The HPC's purview in this particular instance was only on exterior features as dictated by the landmark designation report, hence why their analysis in our case report and staff primarily focused on the um, exterior, while our CEQA analysis both looked at the exterior as well as the interior of the building. As part of our review under CEQA, our staff did do a review of important interior features as well as exterior features. Um, the sector, um, as I mentioned, our staff did consider the interior murals and we did identify mitigation in our analysis. This mitigation specifically calls for the salvage and protection of these murals in the reading room by a qualified art conservator and consultation with tribal groups to gather input from these groups on future public interpretation. The HBC and Planning Commission adopted a resolution on race and social equity, and given the content of these murals, it's important to frame their future retention in light of the city's goals for creating a more equitable environment. In addition, as part of the housing element, we did incorporate the minimization mitigation measure, which helped reduce the scope of the work. I do want to conclude our presentation by stating that the department finds this to be a strong project that balances both historic preservation with the construction of new housing. Our staff did appropriately analyze um, the historic resources present on the site, and which did involve rehabilitation of a prominent landmark, and we're available for any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any questions from members of the Board of Supervisors seeing none? Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, President Peskin. Um, thank you um, for that presentation. And I just want to level set in terms of um, what we are being asked to consider here today. I, it's my understanding that the appellants have based their appeal on the premise that 2395 Sacramento Street is inherently peculiar as it concerns secret provision 15183, um, arguing that historic preservation projects are by nature peculiar. I know a lot of things have been said about wind and vibration and things like that, but the question, my understanding is we're really looking at is whether or not this project can be categor categorized as peculiar, meaning that the potential impacts from such a development were not contemplated in the housing element EIR. So that seems to be the crux of the issue. Is that, is that, I just wanna hear. To the chair, um, uh, Supervisor Stephanie, uh, Lisa Gibson, Environmental Review Officer. Um, the question is, 
is there something special about historic resources that um, uh, puts them in a different category, perhaps, uh, regarding uh, peculiar impacts? At least I'll, I'll say that's how I'll address the question. You can tell me if, if that um, gets to what you're after. So under the um, under CEQA, definitely uh, impact to a historic resource is a, uh, an impact on the environment. And CEQA does identify uh, and provide guidance to what constitutes a significant impact on a historic resource. And it is we very well defined uh, how, you, how you assess that. Um, and and there, it is uh, clearly the case uh, that uh, demolition of a historic resource is a, uh, an unavoidable significant impact. Um, and we also know that um, uh, you can fully mitigate a uh, impact of historic resource by ensuring that uh, you have a project that meets all the, 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 the secretary, you know, the standards of um, the, the standards. So those are some things we know. Now, as far as um, this provision uh, for sequence streamlining that we are utilizing, um, there are no specific uh, provisions or um, uh, exclusions, exceptions, uh, there's no specific guidance that pertains to treatment of historic resources as an impact uh, that differentiates it from other impacts. Um, uh, there is no like exception the way there are for ex uh, use of a categorical exemption. So we look at um, and evaluate historic resources the same as we would under for every topic. And um, we first then, uh, you know, so we, we utilize the same methodology and significance thresholds. Uh, we look at, you know, we identify what's a resource. I think there's no dispute here amongst the parties that this is a historic resource. Um, uh, we, ha we identify what are the character defining features. There were some differences about how the HPC looked at it, how Plant planning uh, reviewed it under CEQA, um, but uh, in, t in total we did look at interior and exterior. Um, and then in terms of the peculiar, um, the review, which is peculiar is a peculiar word, but it, what it means in the context of this review is were there any, um, are there any impacts of this project that are dissimilar from those that we uh, called out in the program EIR, that is the housing element. In that EIR, we looked very thoroughly at what would be the, the physical effects of ultimately the development of a lot of housing in San Francisco. Um, of course, we did not know under uh, what specific location or uh, you know, what specific projects would come to pass. You know, that is beyond the task of a, a program EIR. That would be a project level EIR. Um, but at the program level, we, we were able to anticipate the types of impacts that would occur, and it was very foreseeable that there could be impacts on historic resources, including uh, alteration or demolition. And we called out that impact, and we identified all the, the suite of mitigation measures that would reduce those impacts. And then in the, uh, in the historic resources um, profession, these are very routine type measures for the most part. They're, they're tailored to each individual resource, which has its own character-defining features. And, and the sites on which they're located is very site-specific. So they must, you know, they are by their nature unique, each and every one, but they have the measures themselves have a similar framework and um, those, are the, those are the measures that we identified in the EIR. Um, and they're similar to ones you'll see in most every EIR or environmental document that has a mitigation measure for historic resource. So then uh, we found when we did the project level review for this project that indeed there was a significant effect. 
um, and the, we looked at the measures that were in the housing LMAIR and found that they would, when applied to this project and tailored as we intended them to be, they would lessen the impact to below a significant level. That then led us to conclude that's not a peculiar impact. Um, uh, and so in that uh, case, we were able to say that no further review is needed. Now I want to make it clear, that is environmental impact analysis. That is CEQA doing what it is intended to do, which is, one, disclose to decision makers in the public what are the impacts of the project that is being considered for approval. Two, to reduce harm to the environment, to, to reduce it when it is feasible to do so. This project would do so. And then thirdly, CEQA has a, a, a established in this provision a value that is placed on streamlining and reducing unnecessary repetitious study. And that is also a goal that's consistent with um, our city, which has said that we want to um, reduce constraints to housing development and um, ensure that we have a government that is operating in an efficient manner. So that's just to show you how we find that um, that application is, in, is uh, and that approach that we, that we very mindfully and purposefully um, uh, uh, created you know, this process, that it is consistent with this, these larger set of, of values. Thank you. I think the natural instinct is for people to think, well, anything's peculiar if it, weren't, yeah. if it wasn't studied before. So I, I, that's, I, that's helpful. And I also would like to know what requirements are in place to ensure that extensive mitigation measures are taken with respect to the projects involving historic buildings here and what is the enforcement process? No, you go. Okay, I'd like to ask that Rich Ducre answer this question, please. Sure. Through the chair. Uh, through the chair. So we do have a mitigation monitoring and reporting program that was adopted as part of the GPE. And as part of our staff's review, whenever we are looking at building permits and or future work that involves construction, we are doing a check against the mitigation measures as well as any conditions that are put on by our respective condition um, commissions. So in this case, we have conditions from the Historic Preservation Commission that need to be followed through as well as from the Planning Commission and on basically all three ends, our staff are ensuring that the project is consistent and compliant with said conditions. So for example, to bring up the one with the murals, we, in this instance, we have a condition that requires the owner to salvage and protect the murals that are on site. It requires a qualified art conservator. As part of the work towards meeting that mitigation measure, the project sponsor um, under our direction will have to hire a qualified art conservator to basically work on the retention of the mural um, as well as then conduct appropriate community outreach and then we do not move the project forward while we're waiting on the mitigation measures and or other conditions um, to basically be met. Thank you. I think this is my last question. Um, so the appellants are arguing that basically for a mitigated NAG deck um, to be issued to study the possible impacts of this project. They, they would like that to be the instrument that analyzes this project. And I would like to know what are the differences or the substantive, substantive differences between the general plan evaluation that studied environmental effects and a potential mitigated negative declaration. And 
and also what additional level of study would be taken should a mitigated NAGDEC be required in this regard? What else would be done, if anything? Lisa Gibson, Environmental Review Officer. Uh, a mitigated negative declaration uh, begins with an initial study checklist, which is a, a set of questions that addresses the full suite of, of environmental topics. And um, it is similar to this, it's the same set of questions that we used when we um, prepared our environmental impact report for the housing element. And it's uh, therefore the same questions that we look at through a GP. So it's essentially the same um, questions uh, that are answered through whether it's a mitigated NAGDEC or um, the GPE. Uh, the difference is um, in the uh, substantively, there will be, because uh, mitigated NAGDEC would be um, uh, not tearing off of the housing element EIR, there would be more explanation that would not be referencing the housing element EIR, so it would be probably a longer explanation in the initial study, so there would be um, you know, repetition. Uh, we would be not ignoring the analysis and the data and information that's in the housing element EIR because that is our, uh, you know, a lot of up-to-date um, good information that's in there in the record. So we would probably be um, uh, repeating a lot of that, um, and then we would be identifying the same impacts um, that we have previously disclosed uh, in the GPE identifying the same mitigation measures. The mitigation and monitoring reporting program would look the same because that is the um, identification of the mitigation measures that apply to the project. Um, and uh, ultimately, it would be that, um, with a cover on it, that it says, here's a preliminary document that is the our city's preliminary determination of this project's um, not going to have a significant effect with these mitigation measures applied. There is a process difference. We do issue that out for public review and there's an appeal period um, and that can be appealed to the Planning Commission. I believe that's a San Francisco only uh, appeal pathway. And then they, that could be appealed to the Planning Commission. If the Planning Commission were to uphold the appeal, then uh, when it's finalized and the ap approval action were to have occurred, when that in this case it's a CU, um, that would have, and the neg deck would have had to be issued before the CU, then um, it could be appealed to the Board of Supervisors. So there are two appeals for the neg deck. So substantively, the, uh, you know, more, more paper and an explanation, but the same studies, the same um, impacts and the same mitigation measures, but more, um, cost to prepare that documentation and more time, and certainly more time that would have been spent on the appeal, uh, probably, and anticipate what I would anticipate have been two appeals. So more process and not more review? N not, a, not more review, no. It's not gonna get you any, any additional um, information, because again, the, the, it's clear, with all due respect to the parties that have commented, that there are some, um, you know, misunderstandings, we, you know, there's claims that we didn't analyze the interior of the, the historic resource, we did. There's claims that we didn't do environmental review, we did. So, you know, that, um, we've done the work. And so we would package it into a mitigated NAGDEC and um, go put it out for public review. 
Thank you. Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you, uh, President Peskin and um, Supervisor Stephanie um, got to, I think, much of what I was going to ask about, but I just, um, in a, in a, in a for, for a mitigated negative declaration or a um, or an EIR, I mean, mitigations would be recommended in the environmental document, and then those would be imposed through um, conditions when the planning commission approves the project. Here, environmental you know impacts were analyzed. A lot of them had already been analyzed in the EIR for the for the for the housing element for the general plan there was new analysis where that seemed appropriate because this particular project had not been had not been analyzed and new mitigations were identified that were specific to this project that doesn't trigger a mitigated negative declaration or an EIR because there's no new significant impacts is that is that right okay so i'm getting a nod and and then those mitigations get imposed on the project through the through the approval and so those mitigations of the particular historic resource impacts that have been identified go in through through that approval process and that and that happens all right so that makes me feel more comfortable about this um, one of the things you said though made me feel less comfortable which was you went through the 19 areas where we have identified or you you, you noted that I think the 19 areas where there are significant and unavoidable impacts in uh, the general plan um, it, it identified in the general plan EIR or in the housing element EIR. And I don't think you were, I mean, based on what you've done on this project, I don't think you're saying that because there were significant unavoidable impacts there and we've made the findings necessary, we just get to approve whatever projects we want to that are consistent with that plan. I mean, if that's what you were doing, I would get very nervous because, you know, what you've said here is that you think the significant that there are not with these mitigations for this project, you don't think there are significant and unavoidable historic resource impacts, and you've done the analysis to conclude that. So you're not actually saying, you've already found significant unavoidable impacts, we have a get out of jail free card, approve, approve, approve. I don't think that's what you're telling us to do, but I just wanted to clarify that. Through the chair, uh, Supervisor Mandelman, uh, this is a really good question. I think it's an important one, and I do think it's important to understand. Um, first off, I think uh, it's really important to clarify that the CEQA determination in this appeal hearing is not related to project approval. Project approval is a separate matter. There was a CU hearing and there was a certificate of appropriateness and the project was approved. And those two decisions were appealable to this body ultimately because there was a CU and a C of A. It could have been appealable to this body, so it was not. Um, and given the concern about historic resources, right, that would have certainly been an avenue uh, if that was really, you know, of, of grave concern, right? So that the approval could have been uh, appealed. So here we are, uh, where there's concern about the environmental review, um, and the impact, as you noted, is less than significant with mitigation. Um, and there is no, you know, there's no free pass um, because 
we are applying mitigation measures. And just to clarify with the summation that you were saying earlier, um, they're not new mitigation measures. They're the same measures that we identified in the Housing Element IR, you know, sp specifying though, tailored to address the specific circumstance of the project in terms of, you know, the specific historic resource and, you know, character defining features, et cetera, the murals, for example. Um, so uh, this is, and so with this process, there is not a free pass. It is not an exemption. It is not a no environmental review. We do the analysis because we are still obligated under CEQA, under this process, to do environmental review to identify significant impacts to see if the project has those effects because then we need to identify the mitigation measures. So that imperative of CEQA still applies. And then we must ensure that those mitigation measures get applied to the project and they get implemented, which is, of course, you know, where the rubber hits the road. We gotta make sure they actually happen. And then the disclosure so that then when you go back to the approvals, that the decision makers have before them the information, the disclosure of impacts, so they can decide on balance with these impacts, you know, are they satisfied that the environmental impacts have been addressed, you know, that CEQA has been complied with, and then to move forward with approval. Um, so that's where the CEQA, pro where CEQA fits. Um, and again, this was not an, a situation with an unavoidable significant impact. Um, and you know, we can talk through that scenario. That's why I brought that up with the housing element EIR where the housing element EIR did identify significant unavoidable effects related to the adoption of the element itself. And that's where there is the need for those overriding considerations to say on balance, is this still something we wanna move forward with in light of the fact that there will be these impacts. And I wanted to say also, even when there's an unavoidable impact, we still have to apply all the mitigation that we can. You don't, you don't just declare it, it's a significant unavoidable impact and you get, you get a pass. There still may be a mitigation that applies and you, you must apply that. Great, thank you. Thank you. Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, President Peskin. Um, could I ask planning about um, 15183? If, I, um, if I understand it right, it strikes me that the starkest divergence in factual representations is that planning is either representing, interpreting and using this in a, in a wholly novel way, or this is something that is common in projects. And I'm just reading from the proponents or the, the project sponsors brief that this is, that the housing element EIR specifically discussed the use of um, 15 point, well, one, 5183 to streamline subsequent project level review. Is it new or is it common? I could speak to San Francisco's uh, experience. Uh, it is certainly not new. It's, as I said, I, we began in 2009 with uh, the Rincon Hill area plan, and we began the uh, process of using this provision of CEQA to streamline for projects in the Rincon Hill area plan at that time. And um, since then, whenever we've had area plans being adopted, we've, we've uh, had programmatic EIRs and have used it uh, thereafter. So, um, you know, all the way up into more recently Central Soma and the hub. 
so we've got a, a lot of experience with it and we've improved the process over time to make it um, you know that we're we believe more more clearly disclosing impacts more effectively mitigating and then um, improving the ability to streamline um, the future projects so that the pro it's more efficient you know again providing the information and uh, to the public in a manner that's easy to understand and for decision makers as well okay can I also ask for um, just a general, um, I don't know, overview of AB 1633? Um, I, without, I don't want to obviously ask anything to do that would be advice specific to this proposal, but I may be a general explanation. Um, I know this sought to close um, the CEQA loophole in post-entitlement appeals, so I just don't know if to the, this, I, my understanding is it's relatively new and the can I, if it would be possible just to get a, an explanation of what that is. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Um, we can answer that question. I will just say that um, that is a relatively new law, as you indicated, and um, we are still digesting it. And um, I do have a staff member here who can kind of give our department's perspective, and of course our city attorney is uh, available as well. But I'll just say in general, um, this is a law that uh, for the first time as we have this proceeding at the Board of Supervisors, um, that law is in effect, and, and it, it is a uh, one where uh, it, it allows for a uh, challenge under the Housing Accountability Act uh, against a, a lead agency, if a city, um, if uh, let's say the city requires too much environmental review, let's say by not um, finding, uh, certifying, adopting, or uh, otherwise issuing um, a CEQA document when there's substantial evidence or in the record that, you know, to support that determination. Let's say, again, in this circumstance, that would be um, uh, the case. So if, you know, if that, if that were, I'm saying this is the little, how the law is, I'm not saying those, that those facts um, would apply here. But uh, that's just generally it, and, and we can uh, give you more information about how the law works. But we're, we're, we have not um, yet had that experience with it, so we're still learning about it. Do you, would you like to know more, or is that general overview? Okay. All right. How about you want to do that? Seeing no other questions from members oh. of the Board of Supervisors, we will go to the representative of the real party in interest, the project sponsor, Ms. Catalano. Good afternoon, President Peskin and Supervisors. I'm Tuya Catalano with Ruben Juniors and Rose, representing the project sponsor. If we could please have the laptop overhead for a few couple slides. Um, planning uh, already indicated how and why SQL review here was proper and adequate. I'm going to cover that as well. But at the end of the day, this is about a 24-unit project and uh, not allowing CEQA to be used as a means to delay and jeopardize new housing. This is a multifamily project in Pacific Heights with on-site BMRs. We don't see many of those proposed in this neighborhood, despite the fact that all the services and resources are there to support future residents. The, if, I, um, if you see the uh, existing slide, that's just current slide, that shows the existing setting. Um, the project sponsor is very proud to own a landmark building and to be able to ensure its continued maintenance, preservation, and future with the conversion to residential use. 
The site itself is an excellent example of an infill development, a corner building with vacant land on both interior sides of the property. The new volume is largely in the horizontal additions. And then next slide, uh, you see the Sacramento facade. And in the following slide, you see the Webster uh, facade. Next one. Um, from the beginning, the project sponsor wanted to create a project that is feasible and one that can be built, but also one that fits into the neighborhood. We are not maximizing the state density bonus. The project is only doing a 26% bonus instead of 50%. With the passage of AP 1287 as of January, the bonus could be 100%, which would be much larger and would like, look like something that we have on the following slide on the top. This is not what we're doing, and the only reason why I'm showing this image is to share that the objective always has been to create a good project that fits and works. Um, I also want to mention that we have been very diligently working on this project for a few years. The project has evolved based on feedback we've received, including that from planning. Our very first neighbor meeting was with Temple Sherrod Israel in November 2021. We've had discussions with many other neighbors, including CPMC, the Pacific HOA, and others, including the appellant. On the next slide and on my last slide, I have a side-by-side -side that shows the existing building and then the uh, proposed project. We've had two hearings in November at the Historic Preservation Commission and at the Planning Commission. Both approvals were unanimous. Both com uh, commissions complemented the design and neither wanted to change or condition it any further. This is the first GPE at appeal, but it's not unique or entirely new. For the last 15 years, we have done many, hundreds of CPEs, community plan evaluations. CPEs are based on the same exact CEQA statutes as GPEs which is section 15183. It's the same requirements, the same text, same everything. The only difference is that instead of using a community plan EIR, like the EIR that was done for Eastern Neighborhoods or Central Soma, GPEs use the general plan EIR, which in this case is the housing element EIR. Just because the housing element EIR is citywide does not in itself make a difference. But agreeing with the appellant would undermine what we've done in the last 15 years with CPEs. We have a housing element EIR. It was completed, certified, without any legal challenge. That was based on the need for San Francisco to accommodate 82,000 new housing units in the next eight-year RINA cycle, and which planned for 150 units before year 2050. CEQA guidelines mandate that there be no additional review for projects that are consistent with the community plan or general plan for which an EIR was certified. That does not mean that a GPE can be issued without any project level analysis. Project ana level analysis is always the case. That's been the case with CPEs for 15 years, and that's going to be the case with GPEs. There have been plenty of CPE appeals to this board in the last 15 years. There's also been plenty of CPEs with historic buildies, buildings. I found at least 33 CPEs that have been issued on projects that involved historic resources in one way or another. Uh, unfortunately, and with all due respect, the appellant um, does do a pretty good job in trying to confuse the record. There are some incorrect references to CEQA statutes, including those that apply to categorical exemptions, which is not this. Um, I think the impression the appellant is trying to create is that if GPEs are allowed, CEQA reviews will never be required for any residential project in the city ever again. That is as inaccurate as it gets and completely misses the reality. Here, full preservation review was done and several other applicable topics were examined. 
Um, if you accept the appeal and you send us back on preservation specifically, there's really nothing else to do. Planning already did do a full evaluation, interior and exterior. Um, I, I'd also note that there's a little bit of a disconnect between some of the support letters that the appellant submitted and what actually happened. So several of them state, for example, that planning failed by not doing a full HRE or uh, by not analyzing inter interior. Both of, those, both of those are also factually incorrect. I, want, I do want to do a quick comparison of CPEs and, for example, the Eastern Neighborhoods EIR. When you look at the Eastern Neighborhoods EIR or any plan area EIR, it includes a historic section. It identifies existing and potential resources. It explains how as a result of zoning changes and height increases, there may be impacts to resources, and it includes a list of mitigation measures. The same is true with the housing element EIR. With 125 pages, the same kind of analysis plus the appendices. What the area plan EIRs don't do is to analyze in detail future proje projects because we don't know what a future project will look like until we see it and when we know what level of additions and alterations are proposed. But what has happened in eastern neighborhoods, in Rincon Hill, Central Soma, Market and Octavia, and other plan areas is that when you do a CPE, planning will then do a project-specific evaluation, and that's exactly what was done here, so the GPE is no different. There is uh, no question that the building is a historic resource. It's a landmark building. Uh, the landmark designation does not in discuss the interior. The library used was a private library and thus not publicly accessible like a banking hall would be. Um, it's been used in the last few years as a private event space and based on that, planning determined that also the interior would be a resource. We actually disagreed, but that's irrelevant because planning as the lead agency held that also the interior would be treated and analyzed as a historic resource. Planning also did a project-specific evaluation of the changes proposed by the project. So the record includes the full HRE, parts one and two, and the exterior and interior. Ms. Maley um, did submit a request to the State Historic Preservation Officer to nominate this building to the National Register. Um, we were not aware of that nomination. We appreciate the historic building and actually uh, may have considered that on own, but we did submit an objection to her nomination uh, three weeks ago, and the property cannot be listed in the National Register over property owner's objection. But even if the property was listed, that would not change anything regarding the his CEQA historic resource evaluation that was done, because there's no heightened review for National Register buildings. Um, if you look at what the project actually does, uh, it does preserve the building. We all know projects that propose tearing down significant portions of the building or adding multi-story additions on top, and this is not one of those projects. Um, the changes we're proposing, especially to the exterior, are fairly minimal. I want to conclude by, um, by bringing this together a little bit. Um, um, the reality is the appellant does have a two-unit condo building next door, and the Webster addition portion will be right next to that building. Uh, what he's asking the board to do is to oppose creation of 24 new housing units, including on-site BMRs in Pacific Heights, in order for his two-unit building to not have this project next door. Uh, Mr. Drury additionally um, objected to the use of the GPE, arguing that this will be the end of sequel review. Given that the GPEs effectively are the same as CPEs, and we have a 15-year history of CPEs, that is not going to happen. Um, 
the GPEs will be subject to project-level analysis, and CEQA review is still alive and ongoing. As for preservation, the building and project were evaluated as a historic resource with the same level of CEQA review that would happen in a NEGDEC or an EIR with a full HRE. So nothing was skipped or missed. But at the end of this, it does matter when projects like this are sent back to planning for further environmental review. Right now, you have a feasible project in front of you. Subjecting it to delays and further process increases the costs and timing, and that all impacts project feasibility and whether or not more housing is built. Uh, additionally, um, given that AB 1633 was adopted and became effective last month, not upholding a CEQA document under that law is considered a project denial unless certain written findings are made specifically based on one of the five limited circumstances in that state statute. In our opinion, um, none of those circumstances exist here. But in conclusion, we respectfully ask that you uphold the GPE and reject the appeal, and we're happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you very much. And that concludes the presentation by the real party in interest in seeing no names on my roster for questions from my colleagues. I will open up public comment for those in opposition to the appeal in support of the project sponsor. Madam Clerk, would you please call the first speaker? First speaker, are you ready to go? We'll set the sure. timer for two minutes. It looks like the exterior architectural elements of that building could be easily replicated if the whole thing were torn down and he were to uh, start from the ground up. Also, as far as the interior goes, <clears throat> I was really surprised uh, from what I've seen. It looks like a near exact duplicate of the interior of the Mechanics Institute, including the spiral stairway, the uh, ceiling in the library, which Mechanics Institute also has a, a library, the um, placement of the murals. The murals look very, very similar, but uh, they are a bit different. Um, so yeah, it looks like the interior is a duplicate of the interior of the Mechanics Institute. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Board of Supervisors. Jane Natoli on behalf of SFUMB. Uh, calling for you to reject this appeal today and support this project moving forward. I think planning laid out a cogent case of all of the work that they have done to, to actually make sure that this is in order. They're not cutting corners here. They've been following the rules. They're not looking for some blanket exemption. This is about one project that's a smart, adaptive reuse of a historic resource that hasn't seen a lot of use in the past few years. We can do more with it. This is a neighborhood, one of the speakers preceding me indicated there's not been any, any, any development on this block in 100 years. It's a long time, uh, right? This is a neighborhood that's high resource. This is 24 new homes that someone could live in. That's, that's an exciting opportunity in a place where we don't get that that much. Those are the things that I wanna focus on, the positives with this one. I do think that we're not laying the groundwork to, you know, bulldoze all of our rules here or anything like this, and that in this case, that they've done what they need to do to present that case for you, that this is good and should move forward, and we shouldn't hold it up. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Jake Price with the Housing Action Coalition. Um, our project review committee reviewed and endorsed this project back in the fall of 2023. Um, and the consensus from our committee was that this is the type of housing that we want to see. 
infill development in high-resource neighborhoods. Um, as Jane mentioned before me, this block has not seen any new development in 100 years, and I think it's time for the whole city to do their fair share when we produce housing. We look at neighborhoods in the Mission, neighborhoods in Soma, neighborhoods in the dog patch that have shouldered the load on housing development. And it's time that the highest resource neighborhoods in San Francisco do their fair share. If we can't say yes to a code compliant housing project in one of the highest uh, resource neighborhoods in the city that has already gone through all the necessary process, what can we say yes to? So I ask that this board reject the appeal and approve housing that the city desperately needs. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. President Peskin, members of the Board of Supervisors, my name is Jonathan Brunemann. I'm a resident of Pacific Heights and a lead with Northern Neighbors. I've sent to each of you, as well as to the clerk on our organization's behalf, a letter of support for 2395 Sacramento Street and against the appeal. Since I have given pl plenty of public comment in front of planning and historic preservation, plus authored our letter on this project, you don't hear, need to hear more of my points, and I'll use my time today to read prepared comment from my co-Northern Neighbors lead, Liz, who do you need to excuse herself since she had work obligations on short notice today. My name is Liz Miller, I live in Pacific Heights, and I want more neighbors. The other night, a friend and I went to a restaurant in my neighborhood. On the way out, we chatted with one of the servers. We mentioned we were about to walk up the hill to go home in Pacific Heights. The ser server said, oh, you can walk to your place? We said yes, and then asked where the server lives. In the milliseconds before the server responded, I knew for sure he would not say San Francisco. And he indeed, he shared that it routinely takes 90 minutes to reach his job by car. Certainly, people who grow the economy should be able to live lives here if they choose. Let's not force them into long commutes which contribute to climate breakdown. Let's give them back time that they could spend with family, pursuits they love, or civic engagement. When we deny housing in San Francisco, we are saying, it's fine for me to live here, but not okay for others. This has been our pattern for more than 40 years, and we have built a tiny fraction of the housing needed to keep up with the jobs we add. Someone built my home. It's only fair. I should want more homes in my neighborhood for others, like the server at the restaurant. My name is Liz Miller, I live in Pacific Heights, and I want more neighbors, thank you. And I'll just add one piece of color on my behalf. It's been clear that this has been studied at length, and Liz's story shows that we have a massive housing shortage here in SF. HCD and the state of California and this board unanimously have agreed on this housing element and planning said, much of what is happening here today in terms of process is derived from the housing element. Let's stay compliant with it and not risk affordable housing funding and build this remedy. Please deny the Thank appeal and comments. uphold the GPE. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Uh, hi, my name is Tracy Friedman. I'm a resident of San Francisco for 40 years. I lived in Pacific Heights for 20 of those years. I'm now in District 7. I am uh, very much in support of this project. I think it is, uh, as a longtime member of Sheriff Israel, I know those blocks very well. I do not believe this is in any way an eyesore or any kind of a problem in the neighborhood. I think it's a very tasteful uh, infill project for what is indeed a high-resource neighborhood. I will point out I am a high-resource person. I have three children, none of which could afford to buy a home in San Francisco despite having some inherited assets. This is not the way we need our city to go. I really do not appreciate CEQA being 
misused when it does have very important uses. I appreciate your attention. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Lynn Newhouse Siegel. I've lived in this neighborhood since 1985. I've raised children here, and uh, I moved from a two-unit building to a 1926 high-rise when people thought that was the future of this of our neighborhood. I've pe walked past this spot many times. I've sat on boards of organizations that you all know. Uh, who do not support the appeal, uh, and we have opposed development frequently. And I've been here to speak to planning and to other other city agencies opposing appeal, uh, supporting appeals like this. This one in particular, I think, would just be a delay. I think this is our opportunity for us in Pacific Heights and for us who are very fortunate to be able to choose where we live and how we live, that we can make it, we can be an example for all of San Francisco and certainly for our neighborhood. I think this project should go forward. I think it's, just, it's historically respectful, environmentally respectful. I will continue to pass it all the time. I will not be afraid of the wind. There are many other corners that I pass on my way there that are way worse. And, uh, I hope that you will let this go forward so that we can be proud of our neighborhood as being an example for how San Francisco can go forward. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Uh, hello. Um, thanks for having me here again. Um, yeah, I'm Kumar. Um, I'm here because, well, rather than working, because you know I, I love the city, I care about the environment, um, but I do not support the appeal at all. Um, if we're talking about environmental impact, you know, I think a lot has been said about, you know, what is and is not part of CEQA and, you know, the housing, like, like planning and whatnot. But, you know, consider the actual Im uh, impact of having housing, um, especially what is considered dense housing. You have, um, it says 38 bicycle parking. Um, conservatively, you know, that's not necessarily going to be all full, but a lot of it will be. That's a lot of people on bicycles, not on cars. Um, fantastic for the environment. Um, you have more people in a smaller area. It's just easier to get around. It's easier to walk places. It's just better for the environment. Um, and then if we're talking about historical preservation, how do you preserve something? You cannot leave it in the past to be empty and, and n not accessible to people and honestly depressing to see that it's not open. Um, you want to see things thrive. You want to see people and this project, the fact that you basically see no change in the facade, it seems like it's a no-brainer in terms of historical preservation that's well-preserved. Um, yeah, finally, I'm not a legal, legal expert, but as I understand it, both planning and um, the historical preservation departments whose job it is to determine these exact questions, they've done their work, they made their decision, and that should be respected, in my opinion, unless we have um, grounded appeals made in good faith um, with strong evidence that was not previously considered. Um, yeah, we need to build housing in San Francisco lest we lose all local say in housing decisions. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker.
Hi, uh, good afternoon. My name is Chris Cusera. I live in Russian Hill, uh, like around Polk and Green. Um, and I think the question I see here is like, what's the environmental cost of not building this? What's the environmental cost of maintaining the status quo in the city and making it as difficult as possible to build housing? Um, I think the cost there is more and more people leaving the city, moving to areas that aren't super well connected to transit, um, and likely having to drive into the city for jobs and school. Um, and I think we have really aggressive goals in San Francisco and California um, to shift away from um, you know, cars and shifting towards transit and biking. And I think um, projects like this that are very appropriate to the scale of the neighborhood is a really good way to encourage that. Um, I love this city and I just, it makes me sad that like a lot of times I feel with friends, conversations are just about like, uh, how long we think we can stay here. Uh, there doesn't seem like a realistic plan for many people to be able to afford living here long term in a city that hopefully we all love. Um, and I hope that um, even through small projects like this, we can learn to prioritize um, something that will create more housing and also is a huge climate win. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Jonathan and I'm a resident of the neighborhood. I'm here today to voice my support for the project at 2395 Sacramento Street and to oppose the appeal. I support this project because it will help increase housing availability in San Francisco and because more housing is beneficial to the environment. This is exactly the kind of infill housing that we need to build as the city changes and adapts over time. I ask you, the Board of Supervisors, to reject this appeal and I look forward to welcoming new residents to the neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Good afternoon. My name is Andrew Cludie, and I'm a resident of Pack Heights. I'm also an environmentalist, having spent my entire career fighting to protect our planet. It is with those values in mind that I implore the board to move forward with the project at 2395 Sacramento. I work on decarbonization for our state government work which makes me acutely aware of the urgency of our moment. We are now nearly halfway through the critical decade for climate action, the decade where we can no longer put off critical climate choices. This housing development is one of those critical climate choices. You have the opportunity to create new homes in a high-resource neighborhood, building a denser neighborhood where more residents can live while driving, le driving less and consuming less. That is the environmentally friendly choice here. We must realize that the environmentalism of today demands that we develop, demands that we build a greener city. As a resident of the neighborhood and as a strong environmentalist, I urge you to move forward with the development on Sacramento as the climate friendly and environmentally friendly option. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Elizabeth Brandon. I'm a District 2 resident. I was a District 2 resident as a child and lived elsewhere, finally making it back um, into this, as people have said, highly resourced corner of San Francisco just in the last year. I live only a few blocks from this project, and with respect to some of the earlier comments um, on the other side of this equation, I live next to a building that's under construction, so I know about the noise and the shaking and so forth, but there are things we put up with in the interests of adding new housing. 
I urge that you find that this appellant has not met its burden of proof. This is a very respectful, carefully uh, crafted project in my view, and I would welcome 24 new households in my neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Mike Chen. I'm a District 2 resident. I'm also an organizer with Northern Neighbors, uh, a District 2 organization for more housing and uh, better neighborhoods. Uh, I'm here to oppose the appeal and support the project. I live on the other side of Lafayette Park uh, from this housing, and I think it's a great place. And I'd like to speak on behalf of the people who could live in this building. Uh, this is a project that has that will not demolish any existing housing. There will be no gentrification risks or, dis or displacement risks. It is a prime place to add more more people, more neighbors who could find refuge here, who could raise children here, who could age in, age in dignity here, and who could give back to the city, and who could, who could also patronize the businesses on Fillmore Street and in Japantown. Um, I really hope to, that you deny this appeal. I will also note that the state is watching. AB 1633, the legal status has changed. The housing element that the Board of Supervisors has approved has changed landscape, uh, and we do not want to repeat uh, 469 Stevenson. Thank you. The reason why there should be no appeal. Well, hold on, you can't testify on both sides of this thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> Merci. Yeah, that's true. That is true. That, yeah. General public comment is still coming. Don't go away. We, we look forward to hearing from you more. Are there any other members of the public here to speak in opposition to the appeal? Seeing none, public comment on this portion of the hearing is now closed. And lastly, I'll invite the appellant or the representative of the appellant for a rebuttal argument not to exceed three minutes. Thank you, Honorable Supervisors. Um, Richard Drury for the appellant. Um, Lisa Gibson kind of put it quite well when she said, the housing element EIR didn't analyze this project. That's the purpose of a project level EIR. Well, that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? Um, there has been no project-level EIR prepared for this project, and the housing element EIR just doesn't cover it. Um, there was also kind of this argument that the GPE, this general plan evaluation, is the functional equivalent of a mitigated negative declaration. That is simply false. GPE, if you can read CEQA back and forth, there is no such thing. This is made up by the San Francisco Planning Department. There is no such thing. MNDs have specific legal requirements. They have to have binding and enforceable mitigation measures. They have to be circulated for public review and comment, which this was not, the GPE was not. Um, they have to um, impose all feasible mitigation measures. And if there's a fair argument between experts on whether an impact is mitigated adequately or not, and EIR is required, so you have to go to a higher level of review. None of that applies to a GPE because GPEs don't exist. It's made up out of whole cloth, out of the minds of the planning department, and CEQA doesn't allow that. You can't say, we're gonna do this other thing. It's kind of like almost as good as CEQA, um, but it's quicker, and so let us get away with it. That's not how CEQA works. Um, the um, CEQA has a, a structure, it has legally enforceable requirements, it has a body of law behind it that the staff is trying to avoid here. I'd also like to point out, they said, well, we've done this a lot of times on these community plans. 
Community plans are very different than general plans. Community plans cover, I don't know, maybe 10 square blocks of central SOMA. And if you look at those community plans, they actually do analyze projects at a very granular level. And if you're consistent with that, fine, you don't have to do more sequel review. But staff has admitted, the housing element for the entire city of San Francisco didn't analyze this project. It didn't analyze any project. And if this can go forward, then anything goes. Any project can avoid sequel review, and that's really dangerous. Now, um, Supervisor Stephanie asked if this just comes down to whether there's peculiar impacts under 15183. No, there's actually three legal reasons why 15183 cannot apply. One, this project exceeds the density analyzed in the, in the housing element EIR. The density was maximum 19 units. This has 24. The height was 40 feet. This is 87 feet, so it's higher density. Therefore, 15183 doesn't apply at all. Two, peculiar impacts. I can't imagine a more peculiar impact than an impact to a unique historic resource. And three, 15183 expressly excludes off-site impacts. And that's something that staff has entirely ignored. It's, that's a different provision of 15183. This project admittedly has significant vibration, noise, and air quality impacts. Those are off-site. They take it out of 15183. Thank you. And I'd be happy to take any questions. Seeing no questions, I think that concludes uh, the public hearing, which has now been held and filed. Uh, as previously discussed, we will now consider whether to affirm or conditionally reverse the exemption determination. Uh, colleagues, do we have any more comments? Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, President Peskin. As this is uh, my district, District 2, I have a few remarks. I have um, reviewed this project and this appeal um, quite thoroughly and wanted to let everyone know that my office and I have met with both the project appellants and project sponsors over several meetings and I convened a mediation meeting during which the project sponsor heard directly from the appellants. While these meetings did not provide the mediated compromises I had originally hoped for, they did allow me to gain a fuller background on the back and forth that has been undertaken by the two parties here today and as I said at that meeting that when I am here today judging this appeal, it's with my legal hat on. It's as a lawyer because what we're asked to do is engage in a legal exercise whether or not this appeal is legally um, valid. And, I have, and I'm also a prior real estate litigation attorney, and uh, this is something um, I reviewed thoroughly. I told them this is not whether or not I like the project, whether or not I like housing, whether or not I like people. It's whether or not I think a strong legal argument has been made and whether I think the planning department has made a legal argument that makes any sense to me. And uh, here's where I have landed on this. After reading all the briefs, going through the housing element, which we passed, not all of it, obviously did not read all of it, read the relevant sections. But I do believe today that the um, debate centers on the word peculiar and how it is applied. In this context, peculiar is defined as by the planning department as outside the sounds, bounds of the studies, analysts, uh, analysis, and mitigation measures listed in the provisions of the city's housing element passed unanimously by this board in January of 2023. The argument proposed by the appellant is that a project concerning a historic landmark is inherently peculiar. 
However, this ignores that Section 4.2 of the Housing Element Environmental Impact Report specifically analyzes the potential impacts of future housing development on cultural resources, such as landmark buildings, like the one we have before us today. Section 4.2 contemplates the potential for proposed projects to impact cultural resources and outlines a meticulous set of required mitigation measures that are applied to individual projects as needed. The 2395 Sacramento project went through this extensive analysis, as we heard from the planning department today, and mitigation process, during which the planning department identified no new impacts beyond those listed in the housing elements environmental impact report. As such, the planning department determined that this project is not peculiar. Clearly, the general plan evaluation follows the provisions outlined in Section 4.2 of the Housing Elements Environmental Impact Report, analyzing the impacts of this specific project and applying necessary mitigation measures to reduce these impacts to less than significant. If we follow the appellant's argument that this section is insufficient in analyzing this specific project, then all projects could be considered peculiar, effectively prohibiting streamlining altogether and making this, the housing element EIR, pretty much irrelevant. I think it's also important to note here that no appeal was filed against the housing element environmental impact report following its passage, nor was an appeal filed against the cert certificate of appropriateness in this case. Additionally, the appellants argue that the housing element EIR specifically stated that it was not conducting any project level CEQA analysis and that further CEQA analysis would be required for specific projects when they are proposed. That is absolutely false. When the board certifies the, certified the housing element, board file number 23001, the packet contained the environmental impact report. Page 11 of the environmental impact report states that, and it's right here. Likewise, CEQA section 21155.10 and provisions of the CEQA guidelines, including sections 15183 and 15183.3, provide for streamlined review of certain projects that are consistent with the development density established by general plan policies for which an EIR was certified. In accordance with these requirements, this EIR will support streamlined environmental review for future activities that are consistent with and that would implement the policies of the updated housing element following its adoption. Such activities could include both legislation to enact changes in zoning and other land use regulations and approval actions for individual development projects. So that is contained in the housing element EIR and in accordance with the CEQA requirements and our housing element, a streamlined environmental review for this project was conducted through the completion of the general plan evaluation. The review studied both the exterior and the interior of the historic building. All identified impacts on cultural resources were assessed and had measures implemented that reduced their severity to assure that they would be less than significant with mitigation. The appellants also assert 
concerns about the historic preservation of both the exterior and interior of the Lane Medical Library. However, this appeal, um, this hearing is not an appeal of the Certificate of Appropriateness. The approval document from the Historic Preservation Commission that passed out of that preservation body, it passed unanimously, and like I said, no appeal was ever filed. Today, the appellants have argued for a mitigated negative declaration. They want everything put into that type of document. Yet, as we've heard from the planning department, a mitigated negative declaration would have no additional substantive study, only additional process. Passing the housing element was not an exercise in futility. It was a policy document that laid out how our city will more efficiently approve and build housing for the foreseeable future. Today, we have a chance to affirm our commitment to the policies we passed in the housing element. We have a chance to say yes to a housing project that unanimously passed the Planning Commission and the Historic Preservation Commission. We have a chance to build affordable housing and family housing in a high resource area and in District 2. And so for that reason, colleagues, I would like to make a motion to approve item 22 and to reject items 23 and 24. Motion made by Supervisor Stephanie, seconded by Supervisor Dorsey on that motion made and seconded to uh, approve item two and uh, 22 and table items 23 and 24. A roll call, please. Supervisor Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin? No. Peskin, no. And Supervisor Preston? Preston, aye. There are 10 ayes and one no with Supervisor Peskin voting no. The motion is approved. Madam Clerk, let's go back to roll call for introductions. Supervisor uh, Walton, you're next on roll call for introductions. Thank you so much, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, today I'm introducing a resolution on behalf of the Youth Commission to declare February as Teen Dating Violence Awareness and Prevention Month. Our youth commissioners, Linda Yee and Skylar Dang, worked closely with Black Woman Revolt against domestic violence and their Youth Advisory Council to come up with this resolution, which was passed unanimously by the Youth Commission on January 22, 2024. The Youth Commission will also partner with Black Woman Revolt to host a Love Like That event to raise awareness on the impact of teen dating violence among San Francisco youth. One in three high schoolers will experience dating abuse before high school graduation. Young people are impacted by abusive relationships when they are threatened with or subject to physical violence, sexual violence, psychological aggression, or stalking from a current or former intimate partner. Dating violence can also occur digitally through social media and other electronic communications, and young people experiencing violence are more likely to be vulnerable to long-term behavioral and health consequences, including mental trauma and drug abuse, which also increases the risk of violence in adulthood and future relationships. Therefore, it is crucial to educate young people about the signs of domestic violence to set them up for success by allowing them to recognize for themselves what healthy, nonviolent relationships look like. 
I want to thank Commissioners Yi and Dang for putting this forward and passing this with Black Women Revolt Against Domestic Violence through the Youth Commission. I also want to thank my early co-sponsors, Supervisors Ronan, Melgar, Safai, Dorsey, and Preston. The rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Supervisor Chan. Submit, thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, Madam, <clears throat> thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, colleagues, today I am calling for a hearing before the uh, Public Safety and Neighborhood Services Committee to consider community and neighborhood safety impacts of permanent supportive housing or PSH uh, facilities, including possible requirements or policies for on-site secu on security services and inviting the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to report. Uh, permanent supportive housing is an essential part of our city's social safety net to provide excess, exits from homelessness. And I have seen personally in my district and elsewhere um, how PSH creates housing stability for individuals and families and how it can change lives for the better. Along with only a couple of my colleagues here, I represent communities that have a disproportionate concentration of these facilities, including two buildings that the city recently acquired through the state home key funding last fall. Over the last few months, our office has received significant community feedback, concern, and many complaints about existing as well as future PSH sites, primarily focused on neighborhood safety and security. Uh, increasingly, their concerns and complaints are manifesting, I fear, into public opposition, uh, which I think may, if we don't act, substantially diminish the public support for this critical category of housing if left unaddressed. Um, the department's lack of clarity and consistency around when and where it provides security services, either directly or as a requirement for property managers overseeing their facilities, is, I think, a contributing factor to the opposition we're seeing to this uh, badly needed housing option. My fear is that we will find it more and more difficult to win public support for these projects in the future, and it's worth noting that uh, San Franciscans are themselves policymakers in this realm. Um, this is something that San Franciscans have voted on and voted to fund, and it is important that we maintain and win their confidence. District 6 residents in particular are compassionate people, and we recognize the need to provide housing solutions to unhoused residents. The Soma community has absorbed a significant amount of these and other supportive facilities over the last decade, and more recently, Soma residents um, saw disproportionate impacts from the placement of shelter-in-place hotels during the COVID-19 pandemic. So the combination of these challenges and diminished safety and street conditions uh, that we're seeing in many parts of SOMA, um, this is a clustering of housing and service facilities that's creating anxiety, concern, and distrust of city government. Um, and honestly, I have not seen this level of mistrust in 30 years of working for city government. Um, as police response times lag due to our understaffing crisis and sidewalks are sometimes impassable due to encampments, um, the compassion of District 6 residents is being tested. Um, so I am therefore introducing a hearing to shine a light on the city's approach to engaging with the community surrounding these facilities, in particular on matters of public safety and security. Um, our residents want to understand the department's policies and provide input on how best to ensure these projects are a net benefit, not only to the people who live there, um, but also to the community as a whole, and the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Supervisor Ringardio. Submit, thank you. Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Clerk, I have a little update from um, my service on the Transbay Joint Powers Authority, where I serve as vice chair. Um, uh, as folks may have noted, uh, the portal 
or downtown rail extension project um, has made significant strides in 2023 under uh, the accelerated work plan, which includes two major submissions to the Federal Transit Administration and the initiation of project procurement activities through the issuance of the request for qualifications for the Civil Tunnel Progressive Design Build contract. TJPA is expecting to receive a formal response from the FTA this month with respect to the project's rating and advancement into the engineering phase of the grant process, um, at which time FTA will establish its grant share in absolute dollar terms. We are hoping and believing that will be on the order of about $4 billion for the $8 billion project. Funding advocacy at the regional, state, and federal levels will continue to be an imperative activity this year to lock in the non-FTA funds necessary to secure the project's full funding grant agreement and address what we anticipate will be a $2 billion budget gap, which is um, uh, daunting, but um, we hope one we can rapidly fill. Responses to the um, RFQ I mentioned were due to the TJPA on January 31st, 2024, and work is continuing at a staff and management level among the portal partner agencies on the preparation and review of the RFP package, which will be issued to shortlisted proposers identified through the RFQ process. So our downtown extension project um, continues along, we hope, and we hope we are um, within sight uh, in the next year or two of perhaps of being able to start construction on that. Um, the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman. Supervisor Melgar. Uh, thank you, Madam Clerk. I have a couple things today. Um, as you know, I'm a recent addition to the Budget and Finance Committee. Uh, we are gonna have a difficult year. Uh, I'm uh, confident that uh, with our chair, we will <laughs> get through it. Um, I take this new assignment as an honor and I feel a duty to use uh, each of our public dollars efficiently. Uh, today, I'm requesting that the Budget and Legislative Analyst's Office draft a report for all the funds that we have been awarded by the state and federal government that we have subsequently lost because we have not been able to comply with the terms or didn't have the capacity to spend them. Last year, we received a total of $977 million in funding from the federal government and $1.2 billion in funding from the state of California. That is nearly a sixth of our entire budget. However, uh, it has come to my attention that some of these funds uh, that have been granted uh, were not being spent. And I do personally have a little experience uh, at that since when I was hired many years ago at the Mayor's Office of Housing, I, I was hired specifically to um, you know, be able to rescue millions of dollars that we had gotten from HUD that had not been spent. When we're facing an $800 million deficit in the coming budget years, we have no wiggle room. We need to pinch every penny and fully utilize every dollar to maintain services for San Francisco residents. That's why I'm asking for the report to outline how many funds have there been that have been lost between 2018 and 23, which departments have seen the most and least funds lost and the most frequent reasons for the loss of said funds. I expect that the results of this report um, you know, will help us chart a path for how we can do better. 
but making the changes necessary to balance our budget requires a critical eye and an inquisitive look into how we can do better. I want to thank my colleague, Supervisor Chan, Chair of the Budget Committee, for her co-authorship of this request and look forward to working with my other colleagues on the Budget and Finance Committee to balance our budget and putting San Francisco first. I'm also requesting a hearing on uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, PG&E, uh, response to recurrent and extended power outages. Hearing request, uh, because, uh, first of all, I just want to say I'm immensely grateful to the first responder team for San Francisco, to Public Works for the SFPUC, and the Department of Emergency Management for their work in preparing and responding to the most recent storms. They continue to do an amazing job communicating with the general public and elected official. We still have just under 1,000 San Francisco residents without power. We have heard from constituents that they are unable to deal with basics of life, storing and preparing food, charging hearing aids, cars, personal devices. Parts of my district, including Golden Gate Heights, Forest Hill, West Portal, Parkside, Mount Davidson, and Sherwood Forest, have been dealing with extended outages. Some of these neighborhoods have had no power since the storm and are continuing to uh, experience not having restoration and power for two or three more days beyond today. However, this, has an issue, this is an issue that predated the storm. In District 7, West Portal and Golden Gate Heights have been, in parts of the inner sunset, have been experiencing recurring outages that have been unannounced since early January. Some of these, uh, most of these outages were not weather related at all. Um, part of West Portal, the southern portion of West Portal, which is uh, our main commercial district, um, uh, saw power outages that necessitated stores to be closed for half a day or an entire day. Today I am calling a hearing to request PG&E come and present uh, on the recurrent power outages that are not related to storm um, and uh, on the communication that they have with uh, the their customers. Um, there has been no outreach, and uh, most often the maps that are put out by PG&E do not reflect the reality of where outages are or when uh, the power is turned back on. PG&E, as we all know, have recently raised their rates to consumer as a result of their negligence and maintaining infrastructure. And on top of that, we're dealing with all of this. So I think that they uh, can and must do better, and we must hold them accountable to the extent that we can. The rest I submit. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar and Supervisor Preston. Thank you, um, Madam Clerk, and um, I just wanted to provide uh, an update on the boards and commissions on LAFCO in particular, um, and start off by uh, thanking Jeremy Pollock, our executive officer um, for LAFCO, and Khalid Samurai, the policy analyst uh, for LAFCO, and of course the clerk's office um, for all their support of the LAFCO meetings. Um, so a few, uh, some updates just on uh, LAFCO's been, staff's been busy uh, with some studies and wanted to just give uh, a brief summary 
of, of uh, some of the ones that have been pre presented recently uh, at the board meetings. Um, so first on battery storage, LAFCO initiated the first study as part of our uh, MOU with the PUC on renewable energy innovations uh, on battery storage policies and battery storage um, is uh, key technology for meeting our clean energy goals um, as a city, particularly when used to store uh, solar power generated during the day for usage during peak demand uh, in the evenings. Um, so this LAFCO study will make recommendations on how to promote battery storage while ensuring high uh, fire safety standards um, in our dense city. Um, second is a green banking study. So LAFCO is, built, is building on the work of the reinvestment working group and the plans to, to study how San Francisco could create a green bank as part of the public bank work uh, that would be eligible for Inflation Reduction Act funding. Um, at our January LAFCO meeting, uh, policy analyst uh, Samurai presented uh, additional details on the uh, estimated pre-opening costs of a green bank and as part of the study LAFCO has convened a green finance working group that includes the PUC, Department of the Environment, uh, Treasurer, um, MOCD and Department of Homelessness uh, and Supportive Housing and the working group has discussed uh, potential pilot projects for a green bank to finance electrification and energy efficiency work on uh, city affordable housing using uh, Inflation Reduction Act funds from the federal government. Um, Next, Midtown Park Apartments um, that you are all familiar with from uh, our legislative efforts uh, to move forward, not just in what we previously did in preventing uh, or reversing unfair rent hikes, but in uh, engaging in a planning process um, to uh, led by the residents uh, to plot out the long-term future of Midtown. Um, so LAFCO uh, initiated a, it, it's a uh, first study related to municipal housing, which examines the future management and ownership models for Midtown Park Apartments. Uh, the consultants, and I want to thank uh, Fernando Marti and Steve Suzuki um, for facilitating the first of six workshops with Midtown residents um, on January 20th. Uh, I was uh, pleased to be able to attend um, and uh, there also were the first site visits for the property conditions assessment and independent evaluation um, and that occurred on January 30th and January 31st. So I wanna thank uh, Cindy uh, Heavens from MOCD for her help assembling historical documents on Midtown to inform the study, and also Michael Simmons from Calco, the property manager at Midtown, uh, for facilitating these uh, site visits so there could be independent estimates of uh, what exactly, uh, what work is uh, needed um, at Midtown. Um, and also, and most importantly, really wanna thank the ongoing engagement from Midtown residents uh, who've been engaging in this planning process. Um, and then last uh, but not least on their um, LAFCO at our January um, meeting, LAFCO authorized the issuance of an RFP uh, for a consultant to study the recommended structure for a municipal housing agency. Um, this study was a key recommendation of the Housing Stability Fund Oversight Board. 
um, that was created to uh, guide the expenditures of Prop I uh, funds, um, and the study will inform the implementation of the 2020 ballot measure Prop K, uh, which you will recall authorized the city uh, to own, develop, construct, acquire, or rehabilitate up to 10,000 units of low-income rental housing. So we're excited to see um, some progress moving forward um, on the mandate from Prop K in terms of the development of municipal housing and LAFCO plans to post that RFP this week. Next meeting from LAFCO is March 15th, 10 a.m. Um, and the rest I submit. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Preston. Seeing no names on the roster, that concludes the introduction of new business. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Let's go to public comment, please. All right. At this time, you all can line up on your right-hand side. And so we are setting the timer for two minutes. You can speak to items 28 through 33, which are on the for adoption without reference to committee calendar. Uh, all other agenda content has already been reported out by a board committee or a hearing where the public comment requirement has been fulfilled. And come on up to the podium. First speaker, please. Okay, so it's no appeal, I guess. I, I keep my leave glasses on today. It's, uh, it concerns more LA, generally speaking, but anyways, in San Francisco as well. Warning, you're going back to elementary schools, guys. All I said last year, honestly, was a, a preschool. That is how to be happy using beauty. You see, that means you can't lie. That's why we see all this ugliness otherwise, and it doesn't work. We, work, we don't want to work for profit anymore. Even less usury, you bet. No usury, that's it, game over. Technology, bad. It leads us to an extreme low level of intelligence, symbolized by pretending even just to believe that artificial intelligence can exist. As if intelligence could be defined without any emotion. This is so low level of intelligence, it's unbelievable. That's why you need to go back to elementary school. All of you here, that's why I'm talking to the camera too. I hope this is clear, 35 seconds, 33. I'm gonna repeat, okay, now, just, I cannot but highly recommend anybody using this twisted system of public comments to please, think and brainstorm a little bit to address anybody in this chamber. Because somebody is trying to cut what I say, that's not a good idea. You don't edit what I say, ever. You're gonna be extremely unhappy if you keep doing that. That's not a good idea. Have a nice day, guys. Merci. No matter what. Next speaker, please. Jesus said, if any man will be my disciple and does not hate his mother and father and hate his brothers and sisters and hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever, oh, that was a little bit off. It says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children 
and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, there's a guy you've never heard of, Alastair Begg. He's a preacher, and he's caused a lot of waves in the Christian community because he said it's... Uh, you should go to a same-sex uh, wedding and bring a gift and don't uh, speak against it because you don't want to be judgmental. But the word judgmental is not in the Bible. The word judge is in the Bible. And in Leviticus chapter 19, it says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, but thou shalt in any wise rebuke him and not allow him to sin. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Paul, in amplifying on this, said, O no man anything but to love one another. For he that loves another has fulfilled the law. We just read that in the law. The law is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness or covet, right? Thou shalt, but thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. For love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. But see, now we have it turned around. You know, Jesus made waves. Jesus made enemies. He really did. He said he came to set the world on fire. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Hello, everyone. My name is Carlos. I'm currently homeless. I'm an advocate for people like me who are currently homeless. Um, uh, Madam Clerk, thank you. Um, uh, regarding last week and specific, uh, I'll say specific comments about specific electeds, I'd invite you, Sister, to consider whether or not in those moments you are standing on the side of community or you are standing on the side of comfort of electeds. Now, in this town, um, it's real dirty. There's a lot of people who don't like people in politics. I have only heard stellar things about you, um, ever, Madam Clerk. So I, I know your character. I just in, invite you to consider that um, whenever you're saying that to someone who's giving public comment. Now, specifically, uh, our beloved board president uh, is not here. I'm not sure if he's using the restroom or what the deal is, but I'm sad because he hurt my feelings, and I wanted to say things directly to him. But, um, you know, some folks, however powerful, are comfortable hiding. <laughs> you know, teach their own. Um, I was just going to say it's ironic that last week he's going to stand on democratic process given his well-documented hatred of public comment. Um, you know, you're going to intimate that because I come in here shystied up, uh, I'm some sort of terrorist or white supremacist? Bro, he is the white power structure in this town. He thinks just because he's progressive he can't be oppressive? Give me a fucking break. I mean, Jesus. Anyhow, the political culture in this town is fucked. Who's at the core of that? Many people, but, you know, naming names. You go into the office, it doesn't matter if he's sober or what, you can still feel a fucking stapler flying. That's what it is. And he's going to act like people out here outraged from the community, uh, you know, are, are making terroristic threats. Nah, we're fucking over it. I don't care who the fuck you are. Oh, and as a sidebar... Uh, Shaman, you can do no wrong. Uh, Sir, run for anything. We'll support you for anything. Same goes for you, Dean. Much love. And, and just for the point of information, my job is to uphold the board's rules of order. I'm happy to sit with you and point them out to you as they come up. 
Well, Welcome. good fucking afternoon. It's Jordan. My pronouns are she and they. I want to make it a weekly thing while addressing the board as a whole. You haven't run my clock yet. To praise my supervisor, Dean Preston, for being responsive to the Tenderloin's needs, including fighting for fixing elevators and permanent support of housing. Ever since the TL was shotgun married to D5, he has done what he can to serve our neighborhood. He is a good supervisor. And as a PSH 10, I am really fucking offended that Supervisor Dorse's ass decided to introduce a PSH hearing about us without us. This is cynical political bullshit that doesn't help us. But also, fuck Gary Tan for making drunken death threats. If I walked up to this podium and start quoting death metal lyrics of the moderates, my ass would be tossed in the fucking slammer. I guess there's one set of rules for tech bros and oligarchs and one set of rules for us commenters. The only reason why the force conservative supervisors Turfany and Guardio Mandelman Dorse's ass ain't condemning Derry Tan. It's because if some Dan White wannabe murdered a progressive soup, the mayor would pick an ally to replace him. It's in the fucking charter and it's something that needs to be fixed. I also myself have had transphobic death threats aimed at me publicly on X. I got threatened with death by fire by state worker and J D6 resident Jay-Z and the evil that she does lives on and on. I got threatened with dog mauling by Susan Cryer Reynolds of the Meanie Times and the Stephanie Stalker Joe Cunz used to call in, threatened gun violence on me. And I don't go to the cops, but I can't blame the soups for reporting oligarchs. And Catherine Stephanie needs to stop lying to the press about supporting trans rights and programs. She is a fiscally conservative, tough on crime, Italian Catholic who support Bush Sr. in 88. She supports us starving on the streets and then trans women being raped in men's prison. Que stranza, cero mi tempo, vafanculo. Thanks, Speaker. My name is Jim McAfee. I'm a resident of San Francisco. Uh, Board of Supervisors, meeting agenda, Tuesday, February 6, 2024. Members of the public may address the Board of Supervisors for up to three minutes. If it's two, then say it's two. If it's three, then say it's three. I'm sure you're all as disappointed as I am that the press wasn't here today. They could have acknowledged the lawsuit involving Laguna Honda Hospital with $190,000, I believe you had a final vote on it. Here we go with the California Welfare and Institutional Code 15600H. The legislature finds and declares that infirm elderly persons and dependent adults are a disadvantaged class, that uh, cases of, the, of abuse of these persons are seldom prosecuted as criminal matters, and few civil cases are brought to brought in connection with this abuse due to problems of proof, court delay, and the lack of incentives to prosecute? The lack of incentives to prosecute. Therefore, it is the intent of the legislature in enacting this chapter to provide the Adult Protective Service Agency's long-term care ombudsman programs and local law enforcement agencies shall receive referrals or complaints. Actually, if there are crimes committed by public employees like at Laguna Honda, you should inform the FBI for offenses against the person, not just local law enforcement. Uh, they're also able to take uh, allegations from any other source having reasonable cause to know that the welfare of the elder or dependent adult is endangered and shall take any action considered necessary to protect the elder or dependent adult and correct the situation. Myself and my partner, Randy, who is the resident of Laguna Honda, have been denied this right. More giggles from the Board of Supervisors. It's nothing like being a 
nothing like being. Thank you, sir, for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Uh, my name is Linda Ye, and I represent District 4 on the San Francisco Youth Commission, where I serve as the Transformative Justice Committee Chair. Um, today is actually Wear Orange Day, which aims to recognize and raise awareness of teen dating abuse. As mentioned by Supervisor Walton, um, one in three high schoolers will experience dating abuse before high school graduation. In San Francisco, one in 10 high school age youth report experiencing physical violence in a dating relationship. These young people experiencing violence are more likely to be vulnerable to long-term behavioral and health consequences, including mental trauma and drug abuse. As a result, it is crucial to educate young people to allow them to recognize for themselves what healthy and non-violent relationships look like. The San Francisco Youth Commission has been working in partnership with Black Women's Revolt Against Dating Domestic Violence to raise awareness about the impact of teen dating violence for San Francisco youth. The San Francisco Youth Commission also voted unanimous, unanimously to support the recognition of Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. I also want to take a moment right now to thank Supervisor Walton for working with the Youth Commission to introduce this resolution to the board and other co-sponsors for their support. Uh, that said, I urge the Board of Supervisors to support the recognition of the month of February as Teen Dating Violence Awareness and Prevention Month, to encourage the education of teen dating violence and to affirm the right to experience, a healthy, experience healthy relationships free from dating abuse in adolescence and beyond for all young people in the city and county of San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yi, for your comments. Welcome, yes. Ms. Hakuya Chandler. Um, to you. Can you show, show that? Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Okay, we can see it. My name is Salah Hakuya Chandler, um, cultural representative, heritage, heritage of my nation, my people, the descendant of the African slave trade, and also the consulate in the embassy, representation of my people, my nation. And I just wanted to just bring here, this is the uh, San Francisco Unified School District, and I had to go, I went there today to meet with the, uh, the um, to set up a meeting with the uh, school superintendents um, in regards to my grandson's school um, of a young boy by the name of Christian who called my grandson a nigger in school. And they contacted me and um, to let me know that um, this young, uh, young Latino a child had called my grandson a nigger. And the principal had asked uh, the young boy, why did he call my grandson a nigger? And he said uh, that it's in his home that the black nation is addressed as niggers. And so I asked the principal, um, well, what is she going to do about uh, this young boy calling my grandson a nigger. I asked if my grandson say anything, you know, to him, and they said no. She told me that she was going to suspend the young boy for one day. It was close to Christmas going into New Year's, and it was on a Thursday that she was going to suspend him. And so I let my grandson know. Oh, by the way, I said, well, let's talk to the mother, you know, and see how we can work it out, the family. And um, the mother said that she couldn't meet with myself because she was working late, and that she was going to take her son out of school and I said to her well you can run but you can't hide 
I said, if you're teaching your children to uh, talk concerning the black nations with racial slurs, then the next school that you would go to, you would do the same. And I said, with that, I'm going to create an anti-hate bill, and I'm going to name it Benyoko versus Christian, your son. And so now they have agreed to meet with us. But anyway. Thank you for your comments. Thank you kindly. All the best to you. Thank you for, thank you for your comments. Pass. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Duffy. We're happy to come take that from you. Okay, Otto, go right ahead. We're going to need more than two minutes, y'all, okay? Or three, whatever. Thank you. I'll take one minute and 59 <laughs> seconds. It was a pleasant day today by the standards of most of America and for February, so I came out. Uh, I'd like to note some of the hypocrisy. I am not discussing the issue itself, but the people who are supporting the, who are opposing the, the appeal, uh, you know, I'm not sure that raising, raising density. Otto, we can't talk about that. that I'm not idea. talking about it. I'm, okay. I'm talking about the general issue of raising density, how that is somehow environmental. Or these are very often the same group of people that, there are cities in Europe that have faced constraints for a very long time, and up to 80 or 90% of the housing is mandatorily affordable. They make it affordable, how people, these are the same people that oppose that. We could have every house, most housing units in, in San Francisco be affordable. We could do that, but these are the people that come out and, and oppose it. Last thing, it's kind of a downer, but I've been watching the international and national scene, and, and uh, you know, it looks like President Biden is not going to win in Michigan. Uh, I'm wondering if, if we should be thinking about, as we do our planning, what is going to happen when the presidency and both houses of Congress are Republican? Is there, I mean, I guess we're going to cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Okay. <clears throat> Some of you may recall that many years ago, people gathered here to protest through testimony the outrageous financial charges they faced owing to uh, their admission into, the, into San Francisco General Hospital. One former patient, if I recall correctly, stated uh, he waited several days in a ward on delayed surgery for a broken leg rather than to have been transferred immediately to a hospital within his insurance network, which would have uh, been the sensible decision for a number of reasons. Um, instead, he was charged tens of thousands of dollars in fees for the time elapsed between his admission and much delayed surgery. Finally, however, the uh, Board of Sup Supervisors determined to cap such costs at $4,000 per incident. Um, now, I believe something uh, uh, similar circumstances may be at play within the local juridical system, that is to say that uh, in, in the case of first-time offenders, for example, individuals with limited means, as opposed to no means, may be carried over the prescribed time to trial rather than timely released with uh, reasonable conditions and admonishments so that uh, defendants, um, yeah, in order to drive up uh, defendants' juridical expenses, 
um, which would rise accordingly, considerably, selectively, and strategically, however, not necessarily in the interest of justice. So something, something else to look at. Thank you for your comments. Are there any other members of the public who would like to address the board during general public comment? All right, seeing no one jump up, I'll hand it back to you, Mr. President. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment is now closed. Madam Clerk, let's please go on to for adoption without committee reference. Items 28 through 33 were introduced for adoption without committee reference. A unanimous vote is required for adoption of a resolution on first reading today. Alternatively, a member may request a resolution on first reading to go to committee. Thank you, Madam Clerk. I see there are colleagues who have some items they want to be severed. Supervisor Engardio. I'd just like to add myself as a co-sponsor to items 30 and 31. Thank you so much, Supervisor Mandelman. I'd like to sever 29. 29. Thank you. Supervisor Dorsey. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. I'd like to sever item 28. If possible, I'd like to also ask, I add myself as a co-sponsor to items 29, 30, and as a proud Year of the Dragon baby myself, item 31. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Supervisor Safai. Thank you. I'd like to be added as a co-sponsor to item number 29, 30, and 31. Thank you. Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you. I, too, would like to be added to item 29, 30, and 31. Thank you. Supervisor Preston. Thank you. Uh, please add me if I am not already on item 31. Thank you, Supervisor Preston and Madam Clerk. Please add me to item 31. And I would like to sever item number 32. Yeah. I see Supervisor Engardio, you're back on the roster. Yeah, add me to 29, Miss, missed that one, sorry. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio. Seeing no one else on the roster, Madam Clerk, can we get a roll call vote on item 30 and 31 and 33? 30 and 31 and 33. 30, 31 and 33, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, I, Supervisor Safai. Safai, I, Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, I, Supervisor Walton. I. Walton, I, Supervisor Chan. Aye. Chan, I, Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, I, Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman, I, Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin is absent. Supervisor Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are 10 ayes. Thank you. These resolutions and motions are approved and adopted. Madam Clerk, please call item number 28. Item 28, this is a resolution to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the Winter of Love in San Francisco on February 12th, 2024. Thank you. Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, colleagues, I want to start by expressing my gratitude to all of you for unanimously co-sponsoring this resolution recognizing the 20th anniversary of the Winter of Love, uh, which took place between February 12th and March 11th of 2004. This began with a bold decision by then Mayor Gavin Newsom to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples and in ways I don't think we could have foreseen at the time. Uh, it resulted in what would be a decade-long legal battle and public relations battle and tr you know, struggle to win hearts and minds um, that would finally achieve marriage equality um, it, in ways that I never expected that I would see in my lifetime. Um, I had a front row seat as a member of the city attorney's office 
working for Dennis Herrera. In fact, I was in the office next to Terry Stewart. We were the two queer members of the city attorney's executive staff. And for both of us, this was incredibly uh, meaningful. Um, there were times that I would come back to the office. I would go out for lunch in City Hall. And on my way back, I would go through and I would watch some of the weddings taking place. And it was so moving to see, again, this wasn't something that I ever imagined I would be seeing. And I'd come back to the office and um, you know, I would be asked, because I'd be a little bit weepy, like, what, what happened? And I would say, well, I was at a wedding. And they'd be like, whose? And I'd say, I have no idea. But it, was, it really was something that was special. Um, and I also think that it was, um, you know, we, we here in City Hall and we here in the Board of Supervisors may have our disagreements as we, we should because this is a democracy. But I also think it's an enduring lesson that um, when we as San Franciscans stand together, we really can change the world. Um, so I think there's a lesson in that. So I would like to make sure that I invite everybody next um, Valentine's Day of February 14th. City Hall will celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Winter of Love. I hope you will join me, Mayor Breed, City Administrator Chu, and many others in the rotunda at noon to commemorate past and present leaders who were instrumental in this. We will honor many of those involved, including now Governor Gavin Newsom, whose office will be represented, now SFPUC General Manager Dennis Herrera, now Appellate Court Justice Therese Stewart, as well as Mabel Tang and Nancy Alfaro, our former Assessor Recorder and County Clerk, Respectively, we will celebrate too many of the advocacy and legal partners in that decade-long legal fight. Not least of all, we will celebrate the pioneering couples who more than any of us gave up their privacy and put their own relationships on the line. And in doing so, changed hearts and minds in ways that changed history itself. So thanks again for your co-sponsorship and I hope to see you on Valentine's Day. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. I don't see anyone on the roster, so we will take item 20 out. 28, same house, same call. And without objection, this resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, please call item number 29. Item 29 is a resolution to support the University Professional and Technical Employees Communications Workers of America Local 9119 Optometrist Strike and to urge the University of California Administration to reach a fair agreement recognizing essential labor for San Francisco. Thank you. Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you. Um, Colleagues, on January 17th, UC optometrists across the state voted to authorize a two-day strike, which started this morning and will run through tomorrow, February 7th. Uh, I introduced this resolution last week to get us on record uh, in support of UPDCWA 9119 optometrist strike and urge the University of California administration to reach a fair agreement recognizing their essential labor for San Francisco. The UC system is home to excellent eye care at top-tier world-class clinics, including here in San Francisco. UC eye care clinics, including at UCSF Health, rely on the labor of highly trained doctors of optometry represented by the university professional and technical employees, CWA Local 9119, to perform triage, conduct pre- and post-op procedures, handle complicated referrals, and work with vulnerable populations to ensure they receive high-quality treatment and care. Um, optometrists at the UC voted to unionize back in July of 2022, and since the start of, 20, of January 2023, they have been in bargaining with UC administration to secure a first contract. Many of the issues being discussed in bargaining are ones we see across our healthcare system, including impacts of understaffing and major patient backlogs. 
The resolution requests that the UC administration swiftly reach agreement with UPTI CWA 9119 that recognizes and addresses the issues raised by UC optometrists in bargaining and in doing so acknowledges the vital and vi the significant and vital contribution UC optometrists make to the health and well-being of the people of San Francisco. And I want to thank, I think, everybody here uh, for your co-sponsorship. I urge an aye vote. Thank you so much, Supervisor Mendelman. I don't see anyone else on the roster, so we will take item 29, same house, same call, and without objection, this resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, please call item number 32. Item 32, resolution to declare February 11th, 2024, also known as Super Bowl Sunday, as Niners Day and San Francisco 49ers Day in the city and county of San Francisco. Thank you, Madam Clerk and colleagues. I am going to be brief. This is Super Bowl Sunday this weekend. Not many cities get to say that their team is in the Super Bowl, and certainly not many of them get to celebrate their eighth attendance in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and as we fight to make more history, our beloved 49ers need to know that the city is behind them. I want to take the time to thank the entire Board of Supervisors for naming this Sunday, February 11th, 2024, 49er Day, in San Francisco. Typically, I would scream Niners right now, but I don't want to be a bad example to the public. And without anybody else on the roster, we will take this item, same house, same call. Madam Clerk, can you please read the in memoriams? Today's meeting will be adjourned in memory of the following beloved individual. On behalf of Supervisor Ronan and Supervisor Melgar, for the late, Mr. Oscar Fernando Grande. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Do we have any more business before us today? That concludes our business for today, Mr. President. Thank you, colleagues, public. This meeting is adjourned. <laughs>